Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This week, the Hollywood Reporter had an affectionate cover interview with Woody Allen. Boy, did it get a backlash. The interview stirred resentment because it didn't focus more directly on allegations from the early 1990s that Woody Allen had sexually abused his young daughter. And it provoked an angry essay from Woody Allen's estranged son about how the media often handles celebrities who are accused of serious transgressions. NPR's media guy David Folkenflik joins us from New York. Thanks for being with us, David. Hey, good to join you, Scott. Let's remind ourselves what Woody Allen allegedly did. Well, what he was accused of doing amid a custody battle with his wife, Mia Farrow, was of abusing his young daughter, Dylan, taking her into the attic and sexually molesting her. This had played out because of uh, there was a scandal that had happened just uh, weeks, months before, uh, where Mia Farrow had discovered that Woody Allen had taken uh, nude pictures of her daughter with uh, her former husband, Andre Previn, Sun Yi. To whom Mr. Allen's now married. Yeah. To whom Mr. Allen has now been married for many years. And that tore the family apart. And so it was this sort of twin scandal, a, a Greek tragedy, if you will, that played out at that time and has had these uh, repercussions ever since. How did The Hollywood Reporter, um, the features editor, Stephen Galloway, uh, handle that part of the story? Well, he walked up to the edge of dealing with the question of Dylan Farrow's allegations and then never acknowledged them. What he did was he focused on the question of the scandal of Woody Allen's involvement with Sun Yi mm-hmm. and really uh, asked him a question or two about how that scandal had affected him and, and the way in which uh, her involvement in his life had changed him. But the reporter never really dealt with the question of the abuse allegations themselves. Yeah. And Ronan Farrow then wrote a... Um, an angry and I, I thought quite eloquent opinion piece in The Hollywood Reporter. He, of course, is the son of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. Outline his arguments for us, if you could. He says it's incumbent on the, the press and on the media not to make it easy for celebrities to have these terribly serious uh, transgressions alleged and be able to skate by on their charm, on their fame, on their accomplishments outside the arena of these allegations. He said, you know, it is precisely the inconvenient moment where you have all these stars. You know, Woody Allen is in uh, south of France because of the debut of his new film. And you have uh, stars like Blake Lively, Jesse Eisenberg, and others who are there, Steve Carell. And he says, we should be hearing them asked what it's like to work with an alleged child molester. And, and by the way, those are, those are his words, not mine. Rather than asked, uh, you know, what costumes were you wearing? How did you like your outfits? What was it like to work with this great director? That's his argument. He says uncomfortable, but these questions need to be asked. Otherwise, powerful people can get away with terrible things. How do you feel about that? Well, my God. I mean, if you think about this, uh, Woody Allen was accused of this terrible thing, but it was never adjudicated in court. A prosecutor said he thought there was probable cause, but never tried it. And their question is one of context. Has Woody Allen ever been asked about it? He has. He had a press conference years ago. I, I happen to have covered Which it. Which you covered. That's yeah. right. In this case, you know, it was an interview about the new film, but also an opportunity to talk about Woody Allen's career. And just as Kobe Bryant, as he retired, should have been pressed more by sports journalists and by other journalists about the uh, allegations that he had raped a woman in Colorado. Yeah! 
so too Woody Allen could have been asked even questions like, how did you react to reading Dylan Farrow's accusations against you in the New York Times a couple years back? Have you spoken to her? What do you make of that episode? Even a chance for him to explain his own perspective on that. We haven't heard that in this case, particularly from The Hollywood Reporter. My guess is if they could go back and do it again, they would. They seemingly tried to make up for it by letting Ron Farrow make his case to the public his way. NPR's David Folkenflik, thanks so much. You bet. The winner is Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Woody Allen and Mia Farrow started dating when Woody Allen was coming right off a hot streak with Annie Hall. And that film was given several Oscars, but his next film, Manhattan, was even more well-received. Manhattan is an interesting film to look back at for Woody Allen. Manhattan is a masterpiece of a film. I mean, it's hard to watch it and not think this is, this is a guy who knows how to make a movie. It's a beautiful film. It really captures something about the spirit of New York. The rhythm of it is really pleasing. It's romantic, but it's also more about loss. This kind of feels like the Er Woody Allen movie. When the film opens, you know, you sit through the opening credits and it's so beautiful and there's Gershwin playing and you're seeing the skyline and you're being lifted by this incredible filmmaking. And then you, you come into this restaurant and there's these four people sitting at a table. Three of them are in their 40s. Then one of them 17. I'm getting through to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Gorgeous. Mm. She's 17. 42 and she's 17. <coughs> I'm older than her father. Can you believe that? I'm dating the Woody Allen character is having this relationship with this girl and his friends and he are maybe making little jokes about it, but acting like it's the most normal thing. Their relationship is depicted as something that's real. Um, it might be kind of a May-December romance, perhaps, but it's very much a relationship that's considered to be between two adults. Oh, look, it's great. The late show is a W.C. Fields film. It's widely considered to be based on a relationship Alan allegedly had with a high school student, but that is not something that he's ever acknowledged. So you were a secret girlfriend? Oh, yes. And you were 16 at the time? Um, well, I was 16 when I met him, but, you know, I, I'm going to stand by that 17 we developed our, a relationship. But I didn't tell him what my age was. I just, you know, it wasn't that I was you know, holding back anything. I, he didn't ask me, I didn't ask him. And it wasn't like it only happened once. It went on till I was 23. You know, I was very much in love with him. I thought he was magical. After I saw Manhattan, and I'm at the same age, and there's Muriel looking like myself, and I thought, Oh my God, I'm his muse. I'm an inspiration. And, you know, I even said, you know, am I the muse? He goes, of course you're my muse. 
I felt I was the lucky one. That's where I was coming from at that time of my life. You have to understand that where I was at that age, I was in Seventeen magazine, co-ed magazine, and did all the advertising. I mean, I had this sex appeal as a young girl. And, you know, I, I had trauma. You know, I had been raped four times, you know, around the age of 12 to 14 by people my family knew. And so I start thinking, who can I trust? And I trusted him. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or good, but I had no one. I had just me. And there was uh, an enchanting, enchantment aspect of it. But once you realize this, this is what it was, you could have put that energy, the same energy into yourself. You could have, and that's what I would have done. But I had no one, no one that I could go to. I know it's taken a toll on me. It's taken a toll on how I've been in relationships, trust in relationships. And it's made me a super vigilant mother. I would not let my daughters, you know, go over to an older man's home. No matter what. Well, don't you have any feelings for me? Well, how can you ask that question? Well, of course I've got nothing but feelings for you, but you know, you don't want to get hung up with one person at your age. It's charming, you know, and <clears throat> erotic, no question about that. As long as the cops don't burst in, we're, I think we're going to break a couple of records. You know, but you can't, uh, you can't, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a good thing. You should think of me sort of as a detour on the highway of life. An important move that the film makes is to put the desire onto Tracy. She's the one who's wanting to keep the relationship going. How many times a night do you, how, how often can you make love in an evening? What is it? A lot. Yeah, I can tell a lot. That's, well, a lot is my favorite number. <laughs> she really, can you? Yeah, well, let's do it <laughs> some strange way that you've always wanted to do, but nobody would do with you. I'm sure. He gets to be the shrinking violet, and she's the one with the serious desire. He uses her to make his predation okay. You can't be in love with me. We've been over this. You're a kid. You don't know what love means. I don't know what it means. Nobody out there knows what the hell's going on. We have laughs together. I care about you. Your concerns are my concerns. We have great sex. I've always encouraged you to, to go out with guys more your own age, guys, kids from your class, and Billy and Biff and Scooter and, you know, little Tommy or Tara. Hey, come on, don't cry. You get the feeling watching Woody Allen's films that he's trying to make us acclimated to the idea of these kinds of relationships, um, this sort of power dynamic, um, in a sense, grooming us. It's something that he does repeatedly over and over in films throughout the years. The same archetypes show up, the same kinds of big age gaps in relationships show up. And so when you see it over and over, it kind of attunes you to thinking, this is normal. This is just a thing that people do. It's fine, and there's nothing that I should feel odd about. We're just... So what do you want? You want a kiss? I mean, you want a real kiss? Yeah. You want, a, you want a, an actual professional kiss, right? Yes. 
both of the upper and lower simultaneously? Yeah, I've been really thinking about it. I can't tell you. Come here. Princeton University has the Woody Allen archives, which is boxes and boxes of material that he gives to Princeton University. It has uh, old scripts, ideas with notes in the margins, multiple versions of the same script. So I wanted to know if he has all these archives of ideas that didn't get made, that's sort of where I think a lot of the interesting parts of creativity are. It's just that the thing that kept on um, showing up was this sort of like focus he had on um, very young women. What? How are you doing? Oh, this how, are you? How, are you? how old are you? Twelve. Twelve? Are you married? No. <laughs> I'm a nervous, but... Sometimes there's a you know, murder or mystery or something, but it's basically always an older guy trying to deal with this younger woman and him dealing with that. Is the difference in our ages awkward for you? Have you ever made love with a much older man? Yes. I love you. I love you too. I mean, it was almost assembly line. Just every single time, 18-year-old, 18-year-old, 18-year-old. Cocktail waitress, cocktail waitress, stewardess, cocktail waitress, cocktail waitress, stewardess, college student. Always a college student at Vassar or Smith or like a women's college. He would make a note about the character in the character sketch. He would say something like, she shouldn't be 19 or 20. She should probably be 18, maybe 17, but probably 18 feels right. And then the repetitiveness of the attention sort of got into this obsessive territory. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, August 12, 2021. So I have been told this is our second study session on Woody Allen's Apropos of Nothing. Again, now, the book that I have doesn't really have chapters in it per se, so it's kind of difficult to kind of uh, pick out where we are in the text and all of that. So you just kind of have to pay attention and follow as best you can. The audio segments that we heard at the beginning, the first was from NPR and the date is important. Uh, that was from NPR 2016 when they were talking about, man, they just had this big report on Woody Allen and they kind of really let him off the hook, as they say, and not really asking him any questions about these allegations of his sexual misconduct and all the rest of it. Important because, as you heard in that interview, they said, hey, they we kind of have a tendency of doing this sort of thing. You heard old no count Kobe Bryant when he re he retired uh, from playing professionally in 2016. Say, hey, when he retired this year, we didn't go and grill him. And what about that rape in Colorado? And all the way. And I thought that was so important because, hey, Mr. Bryant passing away at the beginning of 2020, that became a big deal almost equally 
as great a concern with his untimely passing and the other eight people who died, including his uh, daughter uh, at the time, Gigi. But him and the allegations, remember all that? We had to spend all that time uh, at the beginning of last year. And, oh, we can't even grieve Kobe Bryant because he's a no-count raping black male and all the rest of it. <laughs> and if it had been, if that report had been a little bit more recent, it wouldn't have been Kobe Bryant. Or maybe they would have kept Kobe Bryant. And even though he's deceased, it would have been Bill Cosby. Got to find a way of weaving in. Yeah, we got these no-count black males. Didn't say Harvey Weinstein. Those allegations were there. Then, nah, 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 nah. Didn't say Jeffrey Epstein. Those allegations were there. Then, nah, 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 nah. We got to pull in the no-count raping black male. Then they went from that. The next segment now, I went back to the documentary film Alan vs. Pharaoh. I posted a link uh, if you want to check out that documentary. It's four parts online earlier this week. That was from the second uh, segment. It's a four-part series, second segment. Uh, number one, Cicely Tyson, the late, great Cicely Tyson, who we just lost. She was doing the announcing that Woody Allen had won an Academy Award for Annie Hall. Just thought that was significant. Remember the help, Cicely Tyson? Anyway, uh, and then they gave a really I thought thorough explanation of wow if you look at his films the trope that you see over and over again is these really young white women 17 18 19 years old with old no count Woody Allen who is 42 no count Woody Allen who is more than 35 years older than Soon Yi Previn who is also his stepdaughter Go ahead and leave it there, I think. Uh, and, and, and if anything, last thing I'll say, what is white culture when this man, Woody Allen, can make these type of movies for decades and you keep seeing the same thing? Gray hair, geriatric, old white man with a teenage, may not even have graduated high school yet. And you keep seeing the same thing. It's just like, oh, these are the best films ever. Oh, Academy Award. Oh, these are the greatest films ever. Oh, Woody Allen is the greatest filmmaker. That's what all the films are about. What does it mean to be white? What is white culture? What does that fool say? Uh, white people do not care about children. Woody Allen, apropos of nothing, context of white supremacy, audio segment one. Ah, yes. Back to the snowbank. Jerry tells me he has an older brother, Sandy, who is the real comedian in the family. He emcees college shows and I should meet him. And off we go to meet a very big early influence on me, Sandy Epstein of Avenue J and Dickinson College. When he performed, he looked and sounded like a professional stand-up comedian. Sorry I'm a little late, folks. I just got out of a sickbed. My girlfriend had the measles, and while this is not wild or sure, it was pretty much the kind of routine professional comics were doing. He taught me a number of routines and bits and gags, and as public school passed and Midwood High School became my alma mater, the classrooms were the only venues to use this material, which I did, to the irritation of the teachers. It wasn't long before my mother was a frequent visitor, embarrassed as I tried to explain to the dean what I meant by the line, she had an hourglass figure, and all I wanted to do was play in the sand. Things were very prissy in those days, and the appropriate police were everywhere. I did some routines at a local Jewish club to great success, and by junior year, I was a wannabe comic, wannabe magician, wannabe baseball player, but in the end, just a lousy student. 
I was the wise guy in the movie house who threw in a joke during an intense or romantic moment on the screen and broke up anyone who heard it. I got as many shut-ups as laughs. My friend Jerry bought a tape recorder and proudly demonstrated it for me. What is that music, I asked. It's a jazz concert, I recorded, he said, off the radio, Ted Husing's bandstand. It's great, I said, tossing my schoolbooks aside in the direction of the garbage pail. A concert in France. Who is that? Sidney Bechet. Who's that? A New Orleans soprano saxophonist. It was the first New Orleans jazz I heard. Why it clicked so deeply, I'll never know. Here I was, a Brooklyn Jew, never out of New York, with kind of cosmopolitan taste, a great appreciation for Gershwin, Porter, Kern, very sophisticated, popular composers. And here were these African-Americans in the Deep South having nothing in common with me, and yet they quickly became an obsession. And soon I was a wannabe comic, wannabe magician, wannabe baseball player, and wannabe African-American jazz musician. I bought a soprano sax. I learned to play it. I bought a clarinet and learned to play it. I bought a Victrola. That, that I could play with no lessons. I bought records, books on the birth of jazz, the life of Louis Armstrong. My three friends, Jack, Jerry, Elliot, and I must have seemed like a strange quartet while all the other kids were submerged in pop commercial music of the day, Patti Page, Frankie Lane, the Four Aces, we sat on our record players playing jazz music hour after hour, day after day. We listened to all kinds of jazz, but our favorites were the primitive New Orleans records. Bunk Johnson, Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, and of course Sidney Bechet, whom I worshipped and modeled my playing after. And if that doesn't give you a laugh, nothing will. I sat in my bedroom alone, playing alone to Bechet, and later with George Lewis recordings. He was yet another idol of mine. With him and Johnny Dodds, yet another clarinet genius, I felt I had finally found myself. The pleasure was so intense, I decided I would devote my life to jazz. Little did I realize that Bechet, Armstrong, George Lewis, Johnny Dodds, Jelly Roll Morton, and Jimmy Noon were musical geniuses. Their idiom was primitive, but within the parameters of New Orleans jazz, they had something truly magical inside them that oozed out of every note they blew. I, naive clod that I was, did not understand that I did not have that genius, that I was destined for all my enthusiasm and love of the music to never amount to more than a musical nonentity who would be listened to and tolerated on the basis of a movie career and not for anything worth the damn as far as jazz is concerned. Practice though I did, and still do, I practiced every day and with such dedication that to make sure I get it in, I've practiced on freezing beaches, in churches while my film crew lit, in hotel rooms after work at midnight, getting into bed and pulling the quilts over my head so as not to wake the other guests. Yet listen to the music as I have, read the stimulating tales of the musicians' lives and blow, blow, blow with different mouthpieces and reeds, always searching for that combination that will make me sound better. I still stink. I remain like a weekend tennis player among Federer and Nadal. Sorry to say, I just don't have the ear, the tone, the rhythm, the feeling. And yet, I've played publicly in clubs and on concert stages, in opera houses all over Europe, in packed auditoriums in the U.S. I've played in parades in New Orleans and bars there, at the Jazz Heritage Festival and at Preservation Hall, and all because I can cash in on my movie career. 
Years ago, Datsun Raider, a witty man, asked me over dinner, have you no shame? Between my love for the music and my limits as a player, if I want to play, I can't afford shame. I tried explaining to him, I used to play only at home with a few other musicians. It was for fun, like a weekly poker game. Then they suggested we do it at a bar or a restaurant so there would be some small audience. I had years of nightclub experience and did not crave another audience, but they did. So I said, okay. It started small and grungy and wound up decades later that we're regular fixtures at the Carlisle Hotel in Manhattan. And we've always sold out concert halls in Europe with audiences as large as 8,000 people who have stood in the rain to hear us. So here I am, a boy in Brooklyn, smitten with jazz, struggling with a clarinet. I call a great jazz musician, Gene Cedric, the clarinetist with Fats Waller. And I say, I am that young guy who sits at the front table every week listening to you play the jazz concerts with the Conrad Janis Band. Would you consider helping me with my clarinet? Expecting a rejection, I hear him say, I'd have to charge you $2. So for a couple of rugs, he rides every week from Harlem to Flatbush. And since I can't read music, he puts his horn together, blows a phrase and says, say this. I try and blow it, but having no ear nor any discernible talent, I fail. Patiently, week after week, he works with me and I get better, but always within the limits of no real flair for it. We become great friends. Until he died, he remained a constant source of encouragement. Although, if you hear me play, you might call him an enabler. What got me playing with others, because I played only with records for years, was when I was a comic working The Hungry Eye in San Francisco, between sets I'd walk around the block to a joint called Earthquake Magoons, where Turk Murphy, a great jazz trombonist, led a band. I sat outside and listened night after night until one of the guys in the band said, Why don't you come in and listen? Shy wretch jazz lover that I saw myself as, I said, oh, that's okay, I'm happy in the alley, pressed against the exit door, trying to filch a smidgen of pleasure from the music inside. Turk, however, wouldn't hear of it. I was the starring comic at The Hungry Eye, and he insisted I come in and enjoy the band. I did, and he got me talking, and he could tell I knew a huge amount about jazz, and it came out I was a clarinetist. Not knowing what he was letting himself in for, he insisted I bring my instrument and sit in. After many demands, I did one night, and I must say, I knew all the tunes. Turk insisted I come back as often as I wanted. The guys in the band were very polite and encouraging, clapping their hands to their ears with the utmost discretion when I blew. When I returned to New York, having played with the Turk Murphy Band, I was no longer satisfied playing alone and got together some guys to play at our house once a week. The rest is history, but so is the Holocaust. Years later, on a visit to New York, I invited Turk to sit in with my band playing at Michael's Pub. He did, and I couldn't help reflecting on the irony that I had begun sitting in nervously with his band, and now years later he was sitting in surprisingly nervous with my band. Then realizing the vacuous little irony meant nothing, I moved on to another subject. Nowadays, as I step forward to take my solo, I can only think somewhere two great jazz musicians, Gene Cedric and Turk Murphy, are spinning in their graves. So I'm about 15, a multiple wannabe, failing in school, and as my hormones reach a critical mass, I begin my love life, or as one might call it, theater of the absurd. Adrift in a sea of testosterone, 
looking for sex, but more pointedly, searching for that combination of Rita Hayworth's sensuality, June Allison's supportive devotion, and Eve Arden's sarcastic wit. This was a difficult package to locate anywhere on the planet Earth, much less among the local 15-year-olds whose idea of a date was a movie, a soda, and home, getting the key out six blocks from their house lest they shouldn't be ready to open the door and rock it inside before you could kiss them. There were a few winners I dated, though. Simple, lovely girls, smart, literate, cultivated, fetchingly neurotic, and bored stiff by a bumbling wimp like me who couldn't hold a conversation on any subject more complex than the road pictures or how to hit a slider. One girl asked me to take her to the film or Henry's Full House. The only old Henry I knew was a candy bar. Another brought up Swan's Way, but I was too busy demonstrating how funny it was when Milton Burrow walked on the sides of his feet. These girls read and spoke French, and one had been to Europe and had seen Michelangelo's David. Yes, I would say, anxious to get on to a subject I can handle, but when Cuddle Sackle wiggles his jowls, there was something about these women, the fact that they were beautiful naturally, that they always seemed to be dramatically and flatteringly in black with silver earrings. They were not commercial, and their smarts were seductive. They were political liberals. Besides the fact that Lincoln had freed the slaves, my knowledge of politics was slim. They could hum the Brandenburg concertos, and rumor had it they were sexually advanced, although I'd never find out, as dates would often cut the evening short unconvincingly remembering a pressing appointment in Hindia Belanda or having to feed a pet emu. I took one little moose bouche on her request to Greenwich Village. As I recall, she dragged me to a production of Macbeth performed by Thai puppets. Fortunately, I awoke before the curtain came down. After, in a snug little drop over candlelight, she waxed euphoric over Seslor Milos and the perversion of the dialectic while I mentally undressed her. Then it was off to some brick wall folk club where Josh White sang about chain gangs and a man taking names, while on the back there was a man from the FBI taking names. Finally, back to her house where she darted pell-mell to get inside and avoid my lunging kiss while my nose got caught in the slammed door. I struggled always to hold my own, but who was this Steppenwolf? And did I agree with Sidney Hook on what? I never saw her again, and because I had fallen in love with her, I came to realize I had some catching up to do. Stendhal and Dostoevsky would now replace Felix the Cat and Little Lulu. So I read. Some of it I liked, some of it I did not. I was not an omnivore who couldn't get enough literature. Reading was always competing with sports, movies, jazz, card tricks, and just plain not reading, because the print looked too dense. I still am taken aback at the cruel spacing of the magic mountain. Still, I feared I would never measure up socially if I only knew things like who is strangling all the people in the spiral staircase or the lyrics to Ragnar. I read the novelists, the poets, the philosophers. I struggled with Faulkner and Kafka and had a worse time with Eliot and, of course, Joyce. But I loved Hemingway and Camus because they were simple and caused me to feel... But I couldn't get through Henry James, hard as I tried. I loved Melville, the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and I took the time to learn about Yeats' life so I could enjoy his poems. I was so-so about Fitzgerald, but loved Thomas Mann and Turgenev. 
I love the red and the black, especially where the young hero keeps wondering if he should make his move and hit on the married woman. I wrote the Broadway comics version of that scene and played it against Sam and played it with Diane Keaton. I read C. Wright Mills on The Ginger Man, learned about polymorphous perversity from Norman O. Brown. I read indiscriminately, and there remain great gaps in my knowledge. But I listened to classical music in addition to jazz and visited museums more and more and educated myself best as I could, not for a degree or any noble aspiration, but so I wouldn't seem a dodo to the women I liked, although in most ways I remained a dodo. To this day, the Tin Pan Alley poets are my poets, and nothing in the wasteland or Pound or Auden moves me as much as Cole Porter's You're Not Worth the Ransom Like Asparagus Out of Season. I know Edith Wharton and Henry James and Fitzgerald all wrote about New York, but the town I recognized best was described by that sentimental Irish librettist on the sports beat, Jimmy Cannon. You'd be shocked to know what I don't know and haven't read or seen. After all, I'm a director, a writer. I've never seen a live production of Hamlet. I've never seen Our Town in any version. I never read Ulysses, Don Quixote, Lolita, Catch-22, 1984, no Virginia Woolf, no E.M. Forster, no D.H. Lawrence, nothing by the Brontes or Dickens. On the other hand, I'm one of the few guys in my peer group who read Joseph Goebbels' novel. Yes, Goebbels, that gimpy little suppository who flacked for the Fuhrer, tried his hand at a novel called Michael. And don't you think the main character had all the anxiety of the nervous lover anxious for the girl to like him? As far as movies go, I never saw Chaplin's Shoulder Arms or The Circus or The Navigator by Buster Keaton. Never saw any version of A Star is Born. For all my Saturdays at the Midwood Theater, I never saw How Green Was My Valley or Wuthering Heights or Camille or Now Voyager or Ben-Hur or many others. The Drive by Night, The Uninvited, The Bride of Frankenstein. Never saw them. I'm not disparaging these works. This is about my ignorance and why glasses do not make one a particularly literate person, much less an intellectual. And these are just a small sampling of holes in my erudition. To this day, I've never seen Mr. Deeds Goes to Town or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. As with books, there are also a certain amount of films I have seen, particularly growing up, and I've seen my share of foreign movies. Still, I think you'd be surprised at my taste. Example, I prefer Chaplin to Keaton. This doesn't sit well with most critics and students of movies, but I find him funnier, though Keaton was a better director. Chaplin's also funnier than Harold Lloyd, who executed great visual gags brilliantly, but I could never warm up to him. I was never a huge Catherine Hepburn fan, though she was terrific in Long Day's Journey into Night and Suddenly Last Summer, her best. I found her often very artificial. Weeping was her go-to emotion. Whereas Irene Dunn loved her. And Jean Arthur, Spencer Tracy, always seemed so real, except in Pat and Mike. I was never a great fan of Lenny Bruce's, and my generation went nuts over him. I didn't for a second think I was a better comic, not by a long shot. I have a very critical opinion of my own stand-up comedy, but I'm not talking about that phase of my life yet. I'm just pointing out a few icons that surprisingly didn't mean as much to me as to the general public. Like Some Like It Hot or Bringing Up Baby. To me, neither was funny, 
nor do I like It's a Wonderful Life. Frankly, would love to strangle the cutesy guardian angel. Could never buy into an affair to remember. Adored Hitchcock, but couldn't see vertigo no how. Crazy about Lubitsch, but never found to be or not to be funny. Trouble in Paradise, however, I find a knockout, a Fabergé egg. Love musicals. Singing in the Rain, Gigi, Meet Me in St. Louis, The Bandwagon, My Fair Lady. Never liked an American in Paris. Never laughed at Eddie Bracken or Laurel and Hardy or, God forbid, Red Skelton. Of course, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields are the absolute greatest. I also like Rex Harrison in the movie Unfaithfully Yours and Leslie Howard's version of Pygmalion with Wendy Hiller. I think Pygmalion is the best comedy ever written and much preferred to any of the Shakespearean comedies or Wilde's or Aristophanes, although sometimes Aristophanes reminds me of Kaufman and Hart, whom I do like. I'm a total sucker for Born Yesterday, especially as done by Judy Holliday and Broderick Crawford. On the other hand, I never found The Great Dictator or Monsieur Verdoux remotely amusing. I certainly do not find when Chaplin kicks that balloon of the globe up and down in the air an example of comic genius by any means. But who cares what I think? It's taste. You may find those willery lingerie models beautiful and sexy, and I may not, except I do, and there's nothing I can do about it. So much for taste. Meanwhile... High school is droning on. I am slowly realizing that one day in the not-so-distant future, I will have to make some life decisions. College? Where? Must go, though. A mother will put her eyes out in the manner of Oedipus. To be what? A second baseman? A card cheat? It's quite obvious I'm no musical talent. To have the nerve to get up on stage and be a comic for real? And aren't I most happy in a room by myself? I was not a performer, just a nervous, wise guy with failing grades. Meanwhile, all around me, nice boys and girls with passing grades who didn't cheat at cards or dice and were rooted in reality were ready to challenge life and compete. These kids read books because they loved books and loved learning and were not speculating on lunatic professions, but aimed to be doctors, lawyers, teachers, businessmen, here a nurse, they were a psychologist, an architect. And then there was me. Bored, cranky, full of nutsy escapist fantasies. A worm reading only to keep up with the cute little blue stockings with the blunt-cut hair and overbites. Yes, I was learning little by little, but in an undisciplined, random way that prepared me for nothing substantial. Talk about stupid and disconnected from reality. I thought maybe I'd be a cowboy. I really thought I'd go west and herd cattle. Sleep under the stars. Right on the ground with the tarantulas. Meanwhile, I bought a lariat and using a pail in our basement as a target, practiced learning to throw a rope around a steer. Never mastered it. Probably would have gone into a fugue state if I had come face to face with a steer in any other form than adjacent to a baked potato. Christ, I'm afraid of dogs. And I'm talking about all dogs, even Yorkies. You'll hate me, but I don't like pets. And, and actually, I don't like being bitten, and I hate being shed on, licked, or barked at. On the evolutionary scale, I always regarded all animals as failed humans. I also don't like being sung to by a canary, or when fish in a tank look back at me. 
Recently, our daughter came home from college with a pet mouse. She then left the mouse with us for a weekend while she went to the Hamptons with friends. The mouse got sick. It was an emergency, and Sunya and I were forced to take the mouse to the animal hospital ER at midnight. People are walking in and out with hurt dogs and cats, and I'm sitting there with an asthmatic mouse. Sunya got me through it, but you haven't lived till you tried sitting in an emergency room holding a rodent at 2 a.m. next to a man with a sneezing parrot. Uh, anyhow, so if not a cowboy, then maybe I join the FBI. Of course, you had to be a lawyer or an accountant, so pass on that. But I took being a G-man very seriously before coming to my senses. I bought the necessary equipment and learned how to fingerprint and how to read prints from the Delta to the wall. From there, it was a short, psychotic jump to private eye. I saw Murder, My Sweet, The Maltese Falcon. I read Mickey Spillane. Private Eyes had a pretty exciting life. Solved crimes, hot dames, 50 an hour plus expenses. I called a few gumshoes out of the yellow pages to see if one would let me hang around an intern. No takers. But anything to avoid a life of boredom. To not have to punch a time clock or sit all day at a desk balancing books or telling patients to open wide or telling customers, you get a lot of good wear out of this shoe. Time was passing. My skills were not promising. Maybe a gambler. I bought some loaded dice and practiced with real dice so I could throw them both against the wall and box in the lower one with the upper one so I controlled at least one I needed to make my point. There were a few games, and I won a few bucks from the suckers, but the women I dreamed of swooned over artists, poets, cultivated babes who valued Rilke over Sugar Ray Robinson. I noodled around with writing, and interestingly, my first efforts were not only comic, they were lurid and morbid. Although in class, any time we had to write something, I wrote comedy. And not only did it make the other kids laugh when it was inevitably chosen to be read aloud, but it was sometimes passed from teacher to teacher. Let me digress for a moment. Years earlier, as you know, my family started out in Brooklyn. We moved from Avenue J to Avenue L, a big move, two letters. Then in 1944, we went to Long Beach for the summer, renting a bungalow. It was cheap as Long Beach was totally primitive, not built up. It was in the summer streets of Long Beach where my Uncle Abe taught me to catch a ball, and as the years passed, I got good at it. The summer was blissful. I swam in the ocean, only a few blocks away in the calmer bay. I fished with my father, with friends. I'm telling you, I had a nice childhood. I should not have turned out the way I am. So the summer ended, and the war was on, and my father learned so little that Mom and Dad decided to stay in the bungalow for the winter. The bungalow was not heated, but my father bought plug-in heaters, making sure to get the kind that go wrong, set the house on fire, and burn the family to death in their sleep. I attended public school in Long Beach, and it wasn't too bad because the classes were much easier. After school, my friends and I could walk the two blocks to the ocean and have the entire beach to ourselves. Some days we'd go to the bay and set up crab traps and fish. The local movie house opened only at night or if it was a rainy day. In the spring, my friends and I went barefoot. 
even to school. Imagine that, me, who saw himself on Fifth Avenue adding just the right touch of vermouth to the gin and then pulling one of those long silk cords by the drapes that ring for Alan Mowbray was living like Huck Finn or the Baffert Boy with cheek of tan rather than Noel Coward. We lived in Long Beach for a few seasons, and now I come to the point I digress for. In school, I was 10 years old, and I wrote a composition in which I referenced Freud, the id, and the libido, not knowing what I was talking about, but having some odd instinct for knowing how to parlay a jot of knowledge, in this case, just the words, into a comic bit that works and makes the reader or audience think I know much more than I do. The teachers were greatly amused by what I wrote. They passed my writing around, whispering to each other and pointing to me. This odd flair has stayed with me my whole life, and knowing how to use references has grown into a useful tool. End of digression. And if I haven't lost you totally, I'll get back to the main theme of the book, man's search for God in a pointless, violent universe. And so I was closing in on the final term in Midwood High, getting bad grades and not helped by the romantic notion that a life of crime might be the most fun of all options. Then, one fateful afternoon, after a particularly good volley of gags directed at the screen during a movie, someone said, you should write some of your gags down, they're funny. A casual remark, but through the noise of the Flatbush streets, I heard it. I had the stolen typewriter Dad had fenced, and so I went home and sat down at it. I made up a few jokes and banged them out on the underwood. On a roll, luck always being my portion, my mother, a serious woman with a heart of liquid nitrogen, paused in her daily ritual of slapping my face on spec and said surprisingly, why don't you show your wisecracks to Phil Wasserman, not the other Phil Wasserman, the original, the press agent, and get his opinion. He runs always with those Broadway wags. I followed her advice. Phil was impressed and said, you should mail them in to some of the newspaper columnists, Walter Winchell, Earl Wilson, High Gardner of the Herald Tribune. They're good gags. Here, I have to warn the reader, the one-liners were not the equal of Voltaire or La Rochefoucauld. There were mother-in-law jokes, parking space jokes, income tax jokes, maybe an occasional topical one. Example, and don't shoot me, I was 16. There was the gambler's kid who went to school in Vegas. He wouldn't take his test marks back. He let him ride on the next test. So I mail a few of these Akoya pearls into various Broadway columnists, and I hear nothing. Life goes on, and under pressure with bamboo splints pushed under my fingernails by my parents, I toy with the notion of pharmacy. My date with Janet S., a to-die-for girl in my class, with the face of a Raphael Madonna and hair and wardrobe by Jules Pfeiffer, ends in disaster as I take her to a jazz concert. And it turns out she hates jazz, not to mention she's got a crush on Sheldon Lippman, who wanted to be an anthropologist, which she finds so breathtakingly fascinating. Much as I try to sell her on the glamour of sharing life with a mortar and pestle jockey, she can't see her future with me, and I'm heartbroken yet again. I come home from school, practice my horn, sitting with Johnny Dodds on my $12 Victrola. I go hit baseballs and moon over Ellen H., who's also so beautiful that I lapse into Urdu every time she talks to me, 
but she's going steady with Myron Safransky, budding journalist and all-round mensch. She can't stop raving about having been taken to the village to see Theodore, who was a flamboyant storyteller on stage of tales by Bierce and Lovecraft and the new idol of the black clothes silver earring set. Brother Theodore, as he billed himself, had dramatic flair and held audiences spellbound. Years later, I cast him in my first hapless play, Don't Drink the Water, but David Merrick had a fire him because he had no craft and could not hold a performance from one night to the next. I played chess with him during rehearsals, and he kept me in thrall with horror stories, too. These stories were not H.P. Lovecraft or Ambrose Bierce, like in his one-man show, but about Nazis and Europe bursting into his house and simply throwing his relatives out the windows to their deaths. So I'm home, daydreaming of Ellen and her perfect round, no-lipstick face and her leather shoulder bag holding a red paperback by Par Lagerkvist of the Dwarf and cursing a non-existent god for the fact that when I asked her to go with me, she lamped me like I was Quasimodo and gave me the full fuller. That same night, crushed with rejection, before I sacked out, I got a call from a friend who said, Hey, you're in Nick Kenny's column. Nick Kenny was a sweet columnist for the Daily Mirror, a sparse rag that would have gone out of business were it not for the fact it housed Walter Winchell's column. Unlike Walter Winchell, you all saw Sweet Smell of Success, Kenny was a benign softy who'd write little poems in his column. One ended, and dog spelled backwards as God. So you get the idea. Kenny printed some gags each day, and bolting from my bed to race to Avenue J and pick up the Daily Mirror, I saw my name in print for the first time. Alan Konigsberg says, and then some stupid gag that I mercifully can't remember. My heart beat like Krupa's drum boogie. You'd have thought I won the Nobel Prize for Literature. I was already fantasizing my flight to Hollywood to write for my favorite comedian, Bob Hope. The down payment on the Fifth Avenue penthouse would come later after a few years on the road with Bob entertaining the troops, home in Beverly Hills, nationally, tennis court, Porsche. And how about that Mulholland Drive? The view up there is really something, isn't it? especially if you're looking into the back seats of the parked cars. No, but I want to say, finally, I could show my parents, who are convinced I'm destined to wind up eating out of dumpsters or on the 10 most wanted list, that my life may not be limited to dispensing Vitalis and Preparation H. Next morning, a shower and off to school, where if I continue to fail, so what? My future's mapped out for me. As I sat in class... Smugly listening to the teacher drone on about alternate angles on the same side of the transversal, it occurred to me that some of my classmates might see my name in print. How embarrassing. But why embarrassing? Why not proud? That is one of those vagaries of the human personality I will never grasp. All I know is I was a shy kid and being a public figure embarrassed me. One can hear the voice of the shrink saying, you wanted to be famous so much, the wish embarrassed you. A possible insight, but even if true, how does that knowledge butter any parsnips? Meanwhile, there were still a few gags that bore my name out there floating around with columnists, and I felt I had to change it quickly. Changing my name fit perfectly with my daydreams of going into show business. 
At that time, all the performers and some writers and directors and even producers changed their names, and this gesture would make me more one of them. Over the years, many people have speculated as to why I changed it to Woody Allen. Some said it was because of the clarinetist Woody Herman. I liked Woody Herman, but the connection never for a second occurred to me. If you can believe how stupid some people are, one speculation was that I played so much stickball in the streets of Brooklyn and the broomsticks were wooden. The truth is, it was arbitrary. I wanted to keep a germ of my original name, so I kept Allen as the last name. I toyed with J.C. Allen, but felt I'd be called Jay. I toyed with Mel, but Mel Allen was the famous Yankee broadcaster. Finally, my ADHD set in, and I plucked Woody from thin air. It was short, went with Allen, and had a light, vaguely comic touch, as opposed to, say, Zoltan or Ludvicchio. The name has served me well, although now and then, since we both played the same instrument, people have called me Mr. Herman. And once a sales lady at Bloomingdale's, who recognized me from The Tonight Show and waited on me nervously, said, Will that be all, Mr. Woodpecker? Only rarely have I regretted changing my name and thought my given name was fine. Konigsberg had a serious German ring. Kant was from Konigsberg. There's a monument honoring me in Konigsberg these days, unless it was pulled down by irate citizens with a rope like Saddam Hussein's. And there's no reason to honor me in Konigsberg. I'm not from there. I've never been there. And I've certainly done nothing to enhance the lives of the people there. But my name is the same, and perhaps they are hard up for heroes. I chose the piece for many submissions in the contest. I was surprised at how good and clever they all were, and I finally chose the simplest and most modest, which consisted of a pair of glasses on a rod. It looks better than my description of it. There's also a statue of me in the lovely Spanish city of Oviedo, and that statue is a true likeness. They never solicited my opinion or even informed me they were putting one up. They just erected a statue of me in the town, a real bronze statue of the variety pigeons like to roost on. Again, unless a hate-driven mob has pulled it over, it is there to be seen. From the moment it was put up, vandals stole the glasses I wear off the statue. The glasses are bronze and embedded in the sculpture, which is full length, and it takes a blowtorch to get them off. No matter how many times they redo it, someone steals my glasses. I'd like to say I did a noble and courageous thing in Oviedo to deserve this honor, but apart from visiting, filming there a bit, walking the streets and enjoying the great weather, like London in the hot summer, it's cool and gray and always changing, I did nothing to merit any kind of sculptured likeness short of being hung in effigy. Oviedo is a small paradise marred only by the unnatural presence of a bronze image of a schlemiel. And so, with Nick Kenny begins the Woody Allen era, an era that shall live in infamy. I managed to hit Nick Kenny's column several more times, but the big hit was one school day when my first gag appeared in Earl Wilson's column. While Nick Kenny's column was soppy and square, Earl Wilson was the voice of Broadway. His stories and gossip were about show people, plays, movie stars, showgirls, nightclubs, supper clubs. Midnight Earl was a feature, and when a quip by Woody Allen showed up in his column, it was as if I was part of the flashy Broadway nightlife scene. In reality, I was in my bedroom on Avenue K in Brooklyn, but I daydreamed myself cracking wise at Tut Shaw's 
with a couple of Copa girls on each arm. Soon I was mailing in jokes to all the columnists and getting printed everywhere in Bob Sylvester's column in the news, Frank Farrell's in the New York World Telegram, Leonard Lyons in the Post, and High Gardner in the Herald Tribune, and still Earl Wilson and Nick Kenny. I reveled in my private accomplishments, neglecting schoolwork while my marks plummeted. The other kids were visiting colleges. In my eyes, I had already made it. And although there was no payment for these quips, I saw myself buying a penthouse or maybe lunching with the Hopes in Toluca Lake. In those days, there was a Madison Avenue publicity firm, David O. Alber Associates, whose job it was to get their roster of famous clients as much publicity as possible by securing stories about them, TV and press interviews, magazine covers, and whatever gimmicks they could think of to keep their names in the public eye. One source of publicity was to constantly have your name appear in the newspaper columns, and to be quoted, you needed to say something witty. Someone's column might read, Overheard at the Copa and then some funny remark about traffic or mother-in-laws or the president or whatever attributed to the client. Of course, the client never made the joke and probably couldn't have if his life depended on it. He probably wasn't even at the Copra, although both the client and the nightclub were paying for the print exposure. It was the press agent who mailed the gag into the columnists who foisted the myth of a scintillating nightlife on Broadway around celebrities doing one-liners in the manner of Groucho Marx or Oscar Levant. So it was that Gene Sheffrin, the dynamic motor power of the David O. Albert publicity firm, couldn't help but notice that this unknown character, Woody Allen, was appearing in Broadway columns all over the papers week after week. Sheffrin calls Earl Wilson and says, who's this guy? Earl Wilson says he's some kid in Brooklyn who comes home after high school, sits at a typewriter, and mails us a few gags every few days. Next thing, I get a message from Earl Wilson's office to call the Alba office. I do, and I'm invited for a job interview. Would I be interested in coming in each day after school, sitting at one of their unstolen typewriters, and knocking out gags for them so the likes of Guy Lombardo, Arthur Murray, Jane Morgan, Sammy Kay, and others not famous for their wit could fasten their names to my inspirations and claim them as their own? For this, they would pay me $40 a week. At that time, I delivered meat for a butcher shop and dry cleaning for a tailor for 35 cents an hour plus tips. The work was part-time, and if I worked hard and was lucky, I might make three or four dollars for the week. My big allowance had dried up as Dad's liquidity was rather anemic due to some faulty speculation regarding the outcome of certain basketball games. My mother worked five eight-hour days for 40 dollars a week. And here, all I had to do was take the subway from Brooklyn after school, school hours being eight to one, knock out some lively sallies, and ride home. For this, I was going to get $40 a week. I decided not to play it coy, pretending I needed time to think it over. I said yes before he could finish his sentence. And so, I went to work five days a week and knocked out about 50 gags a day. It sounds like a feat, but if you can do it, it's no big deal. The subway ride was about 35 minutes, during which I wrote about 20 gags, the rest at the office. There was much teasing from the other office workers because I was so young, and it didn't help my image when after a few weeks of work, I got the mumps and needed time off. But I worked there for a few years, their clients turning up in columns all over, spouting what we all took to be funny gags, but now in retrospect, were clearly pretty dreadful. I graduated high school with a 72 average, 
and continued working, getting a raise or two with time. I didn't want to go to college, confident of a show business career, but in the interests of keeping my mother from setting fire to herself like a Buddhist monk, I gave NYU a try. For whatever reason, they accepted me despite my dreadful average. Seeking to work as little as humanly possible in college, I took a limited program, three subjects. I was a motion picture major for no other reason than watching movies seem nice and cushy. I had to take Spanish and took English. As usual, my first English composition caused trouble, and the teacher failed the paper, writing in the margin, Son, you need a lesson in rudimentary manners. You are a callow adolescent and are not a diamond in the rough. In those days, my style was broadly comic, much influenced by Max Schulman, and clearly I was not the writer Schulman was. I also failed my major movies, partially because of my old habit of hooky. I'd ride the train from Avenue J to 8th Street, where NYU was. The doors would open. I'd wonder, should I go to class or play hooky? I'd prolong my mental debate till the doors closed, and off I'd ride, feeling exhilarated. As in days of yore, I'd emerge at Times Square and kill the morning around Broadway, the Paramount, the Roxy, Lindy's, the Circle Magic Shop, the Automat with its delicious food. At one, I'd show up at Madison Avenue for my joke-writing gig. When I did go to class, I was learning to play the drums at the time in keeping with my jazz obsession, and I'd sit in class practicing my foot pedal work, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, trying to keep paradiddle rhythm steady. I was never paying attention to the conjugation of tenses or to Piers Plowman. It was in this way that I managed to fail all my courses. They decided to throw me out. I asked for one last chance to save my mother from self-immolation. They said if I went to summer school and did well, they'd reconsider. Biting the bullet, I agreed. At work, David Albert was in some way connected or knew Jimmy Safia, Bob Hope's manager. As a nice gesture, he had me write some sample material for Hope and sent it. A note came back saying, Your boy writes pretty good stuff. None of that callow adolescent crap. Might be able to use him for Hope in the fall. It's hard to exaggerate what Bob Hope meant to me. I had adored him since early childhood and to this day never tire of watching his movies. Not all his movies, not the later ones, and not even so much the very early ones, but Monsieur Beaucaire, Casanova's Big Night, The Great Lover, for example. Yes, the movies are silly, and the humor's not shavian, but Hope himself is such a very great comic persona, and his delivery is out of this world. Often when I grabbed strangers by the lapels in the manner of the ancient mariner and waxed euphoric about hope, they would say, you mean that cornball Republican reading from cue cards and making Miss Universe jokes for G.I.s? Well, I saw their point, that was not the hope I'm talking about. I meant the comedian in Road to Utopia or Fancy Pants. Again, I know the movies are silly, hope may get carried off by a gorilla, but that's not what to focus on, it's his acting. His character, his commitment, his timing, his great one-liners. Like Jerry Lewis, a huge talent, but with silly films, although hopes were much better than Jerry Lewis's. Anyhow, I was walking on air when I heard Hope's camp liked my jokes enough to consider hiring me. I was, after all, a college freshman, 
and as summer school limped on, I was submerged in Keats and Shelley and did not agree truth was beauty, beauty, truth. Nor did I relish hearing my professor discuss the works of Podavkin or the structure of greed while I kept wanting to make Road to Bali. I toyed very briefly with being a comedian, and one of my office workers on Madison Avenue, Mike Merrick, who had been a comic and whose black-rimmed glasses I thought were great-looking, lent me his old loose-leaf book of stand-up routines. I went on once again at a local social club and killed them, and getting laughs from an audience gave one a great high. But Mike Merrick explained to me, it's a tough life. You've got to want it more than anything else. And I didn't. I was drawn more to writing. I liked the anonymity, and many of the girls I dated went ape over Updike and Mailer and not Buddy Hackett or Fat Jackie Leonard. My goals subtly shifted. I would do some gag writing for a while, perhaps for Hope, perhaps for Burl or Jack Benny, if I could make them aware of me. But perhaps I should write deeper things than mere one-liners. It was somewhere at that time that my relatives suggested I have a talk with a very distant relative by marriage, Abe Burroughs. Burroughs was a famous comic writer and director and had co-authored the Book of Guys and Dolls, among other things. Perhaps an aunt who married into the family was circuitously related to him. I could never figure out the lineage. I asked the aunt, who said she couldn't help me, except to say he lived at the Beresford, the stylish West Side co-op. How can I contact him, I asked Charlie. My mother, more aggressive than General Patton, said, You don't have to contact him. You know where he lives. Just go over to his house. Against my better judgment, I dressed for a royal wedding and set out for the Beresford. I told the doorman I was there to see Abe Burroughs. Tell him it's Nettie's son. Just as I waited while he called up, out strolls Abe in a dark suit with a Humburg hat. The doorman points to me and says, he's here to see you. I tell him who I'm related to, a tenuous collection, like maybe 10 degrees of separation. Burroughs, who is heading out to an appointment, reverses himself, takes me by my shoulder upstairs, tosses his Humburg away, and proceeds to chat with me for an hour, feeding me and showing great interest in seeing my jokes. The guy was so nice, so decent, so wonderful. I went back to that apartment a number of times. He liked what he read of my jokes. He criticized the ones he thought I missed on. He wrote a letter on my behalf to Nat Hyken, the fine comedy writer of The Phil Silver Show. Nothing came of it, but he tried. During one of our chats, when I told him my ambition to be a TV writer, he said, you don't want to be a TV writer all your life. I said, movies? He said, no, theater. But don't all playwrights want to write movies? No, all the screenwriters want to write plays. I turned my focus onto the theater when I had seen only part of one play in my life. I say part, but it's not that I left after an act. I saw some half of the whole play. Uh, it came about years before when I longed for a beautiful blonde in school named Roxanne, realizing a creature so heavenly who could charm a Cary Grant or Tyrone Power would never give a tumble to a lad closer in essence to Edward Everett Horton. I daydreamed sadly until one day a light bulb went off. I had heard that Roxanne was dying to see The Four Poster, a two-character play with Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy, two wonderful performers. Sly boots that I was, I got up the nerve to call her and said, if she was free Saturday night, I just happened to have two tickets to the four-poster. 
and would she be interested in seeing it? One could sense the silence on the other end while she was forced to choose between wanting desperately to see the show and having to do it with a zook. In the end, she opted to accept. Now, having no experience with Broadway, I didn't know that there were shows that were sold out and you couldn't get tickets for them. I learned this from the man at the box office who said he could accommodate me several months from now. Gripped with panic, I called one of my friends who advised me to try a ticket broker. I did and learned I could score a pair of seats in a box for $20. I did not have $20 and couldn't think of how to get that without holding up a filling station. Finally, I asked my father for it. It was a huge sum of money, especially for two theater tickets, and I couldn't bear to tell him the embarrassing truth of why I needed 20 rutabagas fast, no questions. But as always, he came through, and I got the double sawbuck. Come Saturday night, I pick up the girl. Charmingly, she feigns interest in my spate of self-aggrandizing anecdotes in which I come off like Rhett Butler. We go to the show. We are ushered into the box, which overhangs the stage from the second floor on the extreme right, the type of thing Lincoln was murdered in, only not as well-placed as his, so half the stage is not visible to us. My first Broadway show, and I see only actors on stage right. When the broker said box seats, I thought of Yankee Stadium or Ebbets Field, where box seats are great. We watch the show, and Roxanne is a good sport. She doesn't complain, but when we leave, she passes on drinks and is suddenly stricken with a mysterious illness. I can't remember. I think she said she was coming down with the flesh-eating virus. Nearing her apartment, however, she has already phoned her brother, saying she'd be home in six minutes. He is waiting at the open door to let her in, precluding any chance of me making a pass at her. I think how funny it would be if I simply kissed him goodnight. Anyhow, years later... When Abe Burroughs asked if I liked theater since I'd only seen half a show, I fumfered. But I took to heart his saying I shouldn't settle for being a TV writer nor a screenwriter my whole life. And with my new obsession, I read every single play and saw every opening on Broadway for years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I was still knocking out one-liners for David O'Alba to furnish gags for the tabloids. If I could be a writer for Bob Hope, that would do it. But living in the future, I would be a playwright, and oddly not like George S. Kaufman, my idol from days past, but like Eugene O'Neill or Tennessee Williams. Of course, right now, I was failing out of summer school, and I was called before a panel of deans. A panel of deans is not like an exaltation of larks. It's more like a bevy of ghouls. It's a humorless quartet who are there to tell you you're out. I listened politely as they indicted me on several counts from being a no-show to failing everything. They asked me my goal in life. I said to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race and see if it could be mass-produced in plastic. They looked at one another and suggested I see a psychiatrist. I said I worked professionally and got along well with everyone, and why would I need a psychiatrist? They explained that I was in the world of show business where everybody's crazy. I didn't think a shrink was the worst idea, since despite all my creative interests and promising start as a comedy writer, along with all the love I was shown growing up, I still experienced some moderate feelings of anxiety, like when you're buried alive. I was not happy. I was gloomy, fearful, 
angry, and don't ask me why. Maybe it was in my bloodstream, or maybe it was a mental state that set in when I realized the Fred Astaire movies were not documentaries. I started seeing a highly recommended psychiatrist named Peter Bloss once a week, shortly after my expulsion, and although he was a terrific guy and didn't do me much good, he eventually suggested I see a psychoanalyst four times a week, where I lay on a couch and was encouraged to say everything that came to mind, including describing my dreams. I did that for eight years and cleverly managed to avoid any progress. I finally outlasted him, and he came in one day waving a white flag. I saw three more shrinks in my life. First was a very fine man named Lou Lin, whom I saw twice a week in a face-to-face -face situation. He was quite brilliant, but I easily outfoxed him and remained safely uncured. Then I saw a very bright lady for maybe 15 years. That was more therapeutic and helped me over some of life's tribulations, but no real change for the better in my personality occurred. Finally, a highly recommended doctor who has tried face-to-face -face therapy with me, couch psychoanalysis for a period, and back to face-to-face -face therapy, and I'm still able to fend off any meaningful progress. So I've had many years of treatment, and my conclusion is, yes, it has helped me, but not as much as I'd hoped, and not in the way I'd imagined. I'd made zero progress on the deep issues. Fears and conflicts and weaknesses I had at 17 and 20, I still have. The few areas where the problems are not so embedded, where one needs a little help, a push, maybe I got some relief. I can go to a Turkish bath without having to buy out the room. For me, the value was having a person to be around, to share my suffering with, hitting with the pro in tennis, also for me, a big plus was the delusion I was helping myself. In the blackest times, it's nice to feel you're not just lying dormant, a passive slug being pelted by the irrational lunacy of the universe, or even by tourists of your own making. It's important to believe you're doing something about it. The world and the people in it may have their boots on your throat, stomping the very life out of you, but you're going to change all of that. You're taking heroic action. You're free associating. You're remembering those dreams, maybe writing them down. At least once a week, you're going to discuss this with a trained expert, and together you will understand the awful emotions causing you to be sad, frightened, raging, despairing, and suicidal. The fact that solving these problems is illusory, and you will always remain the same tormented wretch, unable to ask the baker for schnecken because the word embarrasses you, doesn't matter. The illusion you're doing something to help yourself helps you. You somehow feel a little better, a little less despondent. You pin your hopes on a Godot who never comes, but the thought he might show up with answers helps you get through the enveloping nightmare. Like religion, where the illusion gets one through. And being in the arts, I envy those people who derive solace from the belief that the work they created will live on and be much discussed, and somehow, like the Catholic with his afterlife, so the artist's legacy will make him immortal. The catch here is that all the people discussing the legacy and how great the artist's work is are alive and ordering pastrami, and the artist is somewhere in an urn or underground in Queens. All the people standing over Shakespeare's grave and singing his praises means a big goose egg to the bard. And a day will come, a far-off day, but 
be sure it definitely is coming when all Shakespeare's plays for all their brilliant plots and hoity-toity iambic pentameter and every dot of Surat's will be gone along with each atom in the universe. In fact, the universe will be gone and there will be no place to have your hat blocked. After all, we are an accident of physics and an awkward accident at that. Not the product of intelligent design, but if anything, the work of a crass bungler. Anyhow, they bounced me from NYU summer school, but I was by then a working comedy writer. Not only was I doing it for David O. Albert Associates, but Abe Burroughs had recommended me to Peter Lynn Hayes, who had a radio show, and I got hired to write for him. Arthur Godfrey hired me to write for his radio show as well for a while. Meanwhile, I was hitting the theatrical agencies, and a nice agent at William Morris named Saul Leon introduced me to a wonderful comedian named Herb Schreiner, who did what was called a simulcast. He was on radio and TV at the same time. He was a very funny comedian in the rural Will Rogers style, but better. He told great jokes, and he liked mine and hired me. A writer named Roy Cameron was his head writer, and he was a nice man and a fine comedy writer. I was such a rookie that when I wrote my first show for him, or really contributed some gags, I took a date to the TV studio where the show aired so I could play the big shot with the hopes it would grease the skids to the boudoir. Anyhow, I went to the show and I got in line behind hundreds of people waiting to get in to see it. Suddenly, Herb Schreiner's manager sees me there and says, What the hell are you standing in line for? I said, I write on the show. He said, Yes. But you don't have to get in line to get in. You come in backstage. I do? Come on. And he took me and my date in the stage entrance, and we watched from the VIP room, and I played the big shot. I took my date to Lindy's after, another line to get in. I had been told to tip the doorman, so I greased him with two federal diplomas, and I got taken care of too sweet. A big night till that moment at her front door, when key in hand, she gives me what basketball players call an upfake. She snaps upward, I fall for it and leave my feet as if to block her jump shot, and she goes right past me inside. I'm 18, making triple what my parents earned put together. I have a chance to help out at home, particularly my father who keeps betting and losing and owing the bookies. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. So again, this book doesn't really have chapters per se. It's a little bit difficult to kind of figure out the breaks uh, in, you know, where where we're talking about different portions of the book. So you'll just have to bear with me. Um, That's just the way it's written. What can you do? Anywho, we'll pick up our second audio segment a little bit later in the book. Uh, The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720 Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail 
gmail.com. Uh, we will get the emails. There were a number of them uh, for folks writing in. Let's see. Just had it pulled. There we go. All righty. Uh, email number one. Oh, did it get moved? Man, I had it pulled up. Let's take one second here to get our email. Hopefully, people keeping in mind. What does it mean to be white? There we go. Had too many tabs up. All right. Email number one. Uh, greetings, Mr. Renegade. My thoughts on the first study session. The reader's accent is heavy. The narrator is Woody Allen, the author, one the same. Uh, Brooklyn, New Yorker for sure. Woody Allen. Uh, kind of reminds me of Mike Tyson just a tad bit. I enjoy when authors, writers read their written work aloud. We had uh, Dr. Maya Angelou. She read uh, I Know Why the Caged Birds Sing. That was way back 2014. Uh, quote about the nerd girl. When I finally date one of these delectable bohemian little kumquats, it was brutal for both of us. This line stood out to me. I don't know how to unpack this quote. Maybe a listener or yourself would care to share a thought. I'm thinking cannibalism, but I'm but I could be going too far with interpreting this line. Uh, this was from last week, the section that he just read. And I'm just going to give you this is the dictionary definition for bohemian, uh, which is normally capitalized. So bohemian, the dictionary definition is a socially unconventional person especially one who is involved in the arts. Now, that's the way I've typically heard it used. Uh, they'll say, you know, these might be some people who are painters or sometimes they might even describe non-white people who are working against racism, white supremacy or something that's a little bit, as they said, unconventional. Uh, it's not what you would typically, not typical behavior in a system of racism, white supremacy, and often even, I would say, sometimes suggesting or referring to a non-white person or maybe even a white person who's participating in some sort of non-white conduct or hanging around non-white people. So the quote again, uh, when I finally did date one of these delectable bohemian little kumquats, it was brutal for both of us. Now kumquats, the little uh, citrus fruits where you can just pop them uh, in your mouth. So there's lots of, you know, cannibalism. I mean, uh, metaphors referring to a person as delectable. You generally talk about food that way, delectable Negro. And then kumquats referring to a person as food. There's lots of that in the system of white supremacy seasoning. Uh, and then bohemian. So I don't know if he was so-called dating a non-white person. He did end up his current wife is a non-white female. So it certainly could have been lots of non-white females in New York. Uh, and even that, I mean, the the predation, uh, the obsessive nature that he talks about females in this book and in his films and younger females and the predatory nature. Like I'm literally thinking of devouring uh, this person and thinking of them as food to be devoured. That's just my thoughts. Other folks can share theirs as well. Uh, I appreciate his breakdown of the TV football game Watcher with Playboy magazines taped to the wall. Vivid in detail, but it seems he is referring to himself in this section. I thought that too. I would say what a contradictory statement from a person who produces movies, television shows that have been broadcasted for television use. Rita rainbow of his life quote quote from woody in my view this is an interesting way to describe his female friend who was five years his senior don't want to make a big deal about this quote now but let's put a pin in it and revisit as rita's character develops throughout the book 
Woody describes Rita as zaftig. I had to look this word up. Having a full, rounded figure. Plump. Typically used of a woman. For example, a zaftig brunette. Interesting descriptor used in identifying his 10-year-old friend. Now, I'm just going to pause right here. Uh, I don't know if that was the five-year-old Woody Allen was thinking like, wow, this Rita, what a zafty. Mm, she's so plump and I don't, I don't know. I don't know if five-year-olds think like that. In my view, that's just another illustration of some 85-year-old talking about a 10-year-old in a really inappropriate manner. I could be wrong. Continuing. Excellent job looking up words. Encourage everyone to do. I just did that with Bohemian. Look up words that you don't know or confusion just to be sure. Continuing. Woody, quote on death, the first and only dead body I ever saw was that of Thelonious Monk when I stopped off route for dinner at Elaine's to view him out of respect as he lay and stayed at a funeral home on 3rd Avenue. So let me understand, he had never seen a dead body until that day? He never attended a funeral until that day? Dinner is what triggered Woody to go view Thelonious Monk, his words. Can we say delectable negro 10 times that's important the sequencing eating dinner and then yes i'll go see a dead person for the first time that'll be this dead jazz musician particularly after everything that we heard about his worship of black musicians black male musicians hmm we'll put a pin in that one too uh i will conclude with this his dad never saw a gun he didn't like Dr. Welsing moment and whites and gun culture come to mind when hearing this quote. Thanks for sharing my thoughts about the session, uh, session one of the book study dub from Florida. How about that? Down in Ron DeSantis land, 2024. Uh, the number again, seven, two, zero, seven, one, six, seven, three hundred. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six, one, if you would like to participate uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed hey, I heard. heard both of you okay uh, call it victim in New Jersey proceed sir yeah so um I kind of jotted down because I you know I, I wanted to remember some things so when he was talking about his time uh, with uh, black people, I'm assuming that was in New Orleans. And uh, he says, um, he, he gave a lot of wannabes, a lot of wannabes. Uh, he wanted to be a one, he was a wannabe musician. He was a wannabe this. And he also, I'm not sure if he said wannabe ball player or baseball player. And just last week, he basically talked about how he was an elite athlete on the baseball field. So that just kind of uh, caught my attention because I remember last week when he uh, challenged anybody to uh, question his uh, athleticism on the baseball field. So, you know, if you are this specimen of an athlete, and you was amongst these uh, black people, why would you question yourself and call yourself a wannabe ball player? Um, I think he does a good job 
to people who basically are kind of like not really um, thinking about um, or, or really just kind of like uh, like when you look at TV and you become like kind of like uh, a part of this hypnosis and you you get engaged in a television, you can get engaged in a book. So because we are also uh, reading this, listening to this audio, but we're also critiquing it, he, he goes out of his way to disarm people by basically downplaying his knowledge and his intelligence. He does this a lot. I'm pretty sure he's aware of the uh, people who are talking about bringing up the fact that he's dating his adopted daughter. So I think that this is kind of like his way of disarming people. Um, you know, just basically saying, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not that intelligent. I'm not that informed about this. And, you know, so I don't think that you could have navigated or got to the height of success and you are revered the way you revered by being just some kind of like, you know, just some doofus uh, with glasses. Um, his ex-wife, and I'm not sure if we got that far or if he's even going to speak about this, or I wonder, was there any public um, statements about him dating his um, adopted daughter? Um, I mean, if they were, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, was she bitter? Um, 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 did she go on a, uh, to use a metaphor, a crusade to, um, you know, bring him down? I mean, I would assume that, you know, a woman who was married or dating a man and this man moved on and not only moved on with a younger woman, but the woman that you two adopted, um, if she didn't, if she didn't go out her way to, um, you know, say how wrong this uh, union, this relationship was, um, I'm su I suspect that she was fully aware of this man's pedophilia. And, um, you know, maybe even, <laughs> you know, maybe even I, I heard, I think a caller asked, was this like an arranged uh, deal where he adopted this? this young uh, Asian woman, girl, and groomed her to be his, you know, his, his wife and, you know, to also molest her, you know, um, sexually assault her, because I think it is sexually assault when you adopt somebody and then you go on and have a relationship. So I'm I'm thinking, you know, was the wife in on this, you know? So um, those are some of the things that I've um, got from today's uh um, reading in uh, last week um, I year. much obliged victim in New Jersey I think that's a really important point about the disarming this book was written last year so this is not like we're we're reading something that was you know from 50 years ago or 20 even though he's talking about these things that are you know World War II and all the rest he wrote this last year so, or it was published excuse, last year. So as he said, he's very aware of the attention on these allegations. And so wait a minute, 
this guy has been married to step and all the rest of it. Hey, 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 I'm just as you, I'm just some doofus with glasses, man. I'm not smart and grooming anybody. I'm just some doofus, man. What are you talking about? I'm just some old dumb white guy. Mo in Dallas, thank you for your patience, sir. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, um, uh, short modifier. If my sound comes distorted, uh, please uh, inform me and I will, because uh, I'm on a headset and I want to make sure I'm clear. Um, well, starting, uh, Gus asked a question. I believe the question was, uh, what is white culture? Uh, I planned on, you know, listening to the audio segment and formulating my own answer, but I heard a quote uh, from the book uh, that, uh, a kind of a personified white culture uh, through the author, through the author, um, and that is, if I want to play, I can't afford shame. Um, that quote stuck out to me because this book seems to be written in a very shameless manner, um, with his uh, inappropriate references to the the younger ladies, especially like um, like the previous caller. Um, I. You know, I've, I'm just not, I, I, I don't enjoy, you know, those references. I, I, that's the simplest way I can place my feelings um, uh, in that regard. Um, my, my love life, uh, the theater of the absurd, um, I thought that was very interesting. Because uh, uh, that, that quote sounded to me as if he knew he was up to um, inappropriate things very early on because he's talking about his 15 year old love life and then um, 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 and I was uh, this is the notes are in like order in which I heard him he also uh, referred to himself as a, a dumb jock in some capacity and uh, and, and I was uh, I was confused about that because this was after his you know music rant and rift and, um, you know, dumb jocks don't befriend famous musicians at 15. You don't, you know, there's a lot of initiative into the things that he was doing, you know, so to kind of run back to the dumb jock, you know, uh, security blanket um, isn't working because he doesn't look like, like, he doesn't look, sound, personify any, or has he ever, in my opinion, personified a jock in any sense. Like, if he wouldn't have written that, I would have never thought it. Um um, uh, he was probably a lifelong pervert. Uh, uh, all of his dates uh, cowered from him, according to him. And one either uh, assaulted him with a door or defended, or defended herself with a door, uh, depending on how you look at that. You know, and that's just a very awkward person. I, I can only imagine um, his reputation. And if he was, um, uh, like anything the way he described, uh, I can, I can understand why young ladies, his age and you know, young white women, his age, uh, would cower from him. And then I could also understand why that cowering would inspire him to victimize non-white people. Uh, <clears throat> um, he has a daughter that had a pet mouse and this was Sunyi's daughter. So my question, understanding that, that he had a child with his 
child, from what I'm understanding, legally anyway. So is her mother her sister, or is he her father and grandfather? And I'm, and I'm asking because I'm under the impression that he is still functioning as his wife's father. Should he adopt? I don't know if you can unadopt someone. I don't know how that goes. Um, so that's a question. Um, I didn't know his name was Alan Cunningsberg, Cunningsberg, or whatever it was. Um, so he uh, and uh, and Woody was the name he chose for himself. Um, in my mind, like when I heard that, I thought this man named himself an erection because at the at the time a Woody. Like it was, it was very common for, uh, well, you know, in in his in his lifespan, uh, and, and this is a phrase that's kind of not common now. But an erection was known as a Woody, you understand? And and I'm like, it, when he started explaining it, um, he actually said he would have liked to would have liked to been memorialized as a rod with glasses. To me, that's a Woody. Like so, I'm just. What else do I have? Um, oh, uh, I don't enjoy his format of, of, of writing. Um, there is a lot of veering off, like as referred to by the, the, the previous caller. I, I, um, I think it is used to disarm, but since we are listening to this uh, work with the intent of studying it, like we... You know, I think we as a group are using, you know, sort of uh, our brain computers in unison are, are able to to unpack it better than if we were reading it alone. Because if I was hearing this alone, the way he um, veers off, I would stop. I would stop. He talks about a lot of unnecessary things, um, in my opinion. And I know he might read a man later, but it's just all over the place. Um but I am interested how he will use this tactic in the future. Um, see if he can really like attempt to disarm someone into into breezing through molesting his child, like or his adopted child. That was going to be uh, interesting. Um, um, fear, complexes, and weaknesses. I've had the same since seventeen. He has literally like painted. Uh, his experiences with therapists, counselors, people that are um, are, are paid to, uh, you know, ensure his mental well-being. He has treated that as if it was warfare and that he's right in, in what he wants. Um, and he's paying for this. And to that, I go back to my initial quote. If I want to play, I can afford no shame. I think he's using the logic of other people in such a way to circumvent regular people from himself and avoid being ashamed or, or validating his bad behavior. Um, that's all I have. I need my line. Much obliged Mo in Dallas. Uh, I think that really important point about the, uh, how he has so many different anecdotes and from a very young age, presumably of white women, 
uh, cowering from him and I got to get out of here, man. I got to feed the dog. And oh my gosh, my brother is sick. And oh, I left the, the, the coffee, the stove is on. Got to get out of here. <laughs> like slamming the door. Like you said, either she was protecting herself from him or either way, I got to get out of something. This dude is, you know, strange. Like I got to get out of here. Um, and then he goes to preying on children, non-white people. Very astute point in my, because he has so many of the, he, this guy's creepy. Got to get out of here. E, e, e. Uh, let's see. Self-proclaimed uh, uh, freak, Gus. One more time, sir. He was a self-proclaimed creep, which was interesting. Mm, mm. Telling on himself, as they say. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing would have... Whew. She would have had a field day with this book. And keeping in mind his current, she would have had a field day with this book. Uh, call her 3098-3098. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, callers. Um, I'm going to reflect on some of my thoughts from the first, um, installment of the book reading. Um, as a native New Yorker, I, I recall how Allen was um, honored for his uh, reputation of Manhattan in his films, but I can't think of a single, single film he created but that I have ever viewed, but though I know a few titles um, like Annie Hall, listen to the um, first installment. I was, installed, I was intrigued by he was um, so... celebrating his uh, criminality of his father himself. And I, I wrote down that his portrayal is a typical schmuck. That's a, uh, you know, as most people might know, is a um, Yiddish term, which is striking, which is further researched. The etymology is, according to uh, Mira Nelson, it literally means penis, which is fascinating. And then I, had, I thought about your question, what does it mean white? And answering my view is uh, specific to white people in this ge- geographic area in New-, in New York as self-involved, self-indulgent, overall selfish, selfish persons who um, self-deprecate to hide their racism as neurosis. And I'll leave my line. Hmm. Interesting self-deprecation uh, as a form of camouflage for white supremacy, racism, child rape, criminal activity in general. Hmm. Much of I thought for people that, you know, are in the New York area, like there will be some subtle differences in how they hear this. And he's, you know, so revered in the New York area and has been for the past I don't know, like 50 years or so, maybe even longer than that. So, yeah, for folks in the New York area, this will probably read a little differently. Snare in another uh, comment from one of our folks who wrote in. She wrote, or this person writes, uh, watch the documentary, Alan V. Farrow, first chapter of the book. He makes himself out to be to makes himself out to not be a reader in the documentary. Mir Farrow describes him as always reading and 
well read. I think I remember some of the children talking about how he would always bring over these newspapers in the morning and they would hang out while he read the paper. Yeah, I guess he could maybe say that, hey, I'm describing myself as a young person and I was not a reader then. And then, you know, maybe I read a little bit as an adult now. Accusations of him molesting his own biological daughter. Mir Pharaoh was a tad odd as well, in my opinion, at least based on the documentary. I think Mr. Allen is trying to come across witty in his book, but falls short metaphor, in my opinion. Much obliged, one of the folks who wrote in. I'll share a few of my notes and double check and then make sure we have another email as well. Uh, So let's see. Just from the audio, one last note, the documentary where they're talking about the movie Manhattan. And they have the scene where he's in bed with this 17-year-old white female. He's in the film, I think, 42. Uh, That's about the same age differential with Soon Yi. And, or actually, I think he's a little bit older. A little bit older than that. But anyway, uh, where the white female, 17-year-old teenager, and that would be statutory rape in Washington State. It wouldn't be, oh, I think that's okay. It would be statutory rape. She's 17 anything over 22 statutory rape there's no question it would just be called the police and going to jail mr allen that's it um she the 17 year old says hey let's make love again let's have sexual intercourse again and let's do it in some strange way that you've never been able to do it before he puts that line coming from her so that he can be the one that's oh my gosh really what do you mean and be all surprised and shocked and blushed and what what do you mean get out (laughs) so then uh, all of this obsession with these New Orleans black jazz artists and we just read about Tupac and Biggie right it was the first New Orleans jazz I heard why it clicked so deeply I'll never know here I was a Brooklyn Jew never out of New York with 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 kind of cosmopolitan taste, a great appreciation for Gershwin, Porter, Kern, very sophisticated, popular composers, and here were these African Americans in the Deep South having nothing in common with me. <clears throat> oh, what, 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 nothing in common with me, and yet quickly became an obsession, important word, and soon I was a wannabe comic, wannabe magician, wannabe baseball player, and wannabe African American jazz musician. Hmm. I do feel like that's another uh, delectable Negro moment, this consumption, because he said he had an obsession, this consumption of these black musicians, jazz or black male artists, especially. And I feel like this is a part of that where he's give, he's saying all the time, I'm just a dumb white guy, I'm just a dumb white guy. But then he does all this name dropping of all of these composers and classical white composers. Where oh this is where you show your sophistication as a powerful white man but he's saying all the time oh no 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 I'm just a dumb white guy I just watch television and eat potato chips I'm just a dumb white guy yeah 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 I don't do any reading let's see next he said and then these black musicians that he's obsessed with he says we listen to all kinds of jazz but our favorite were our favorites were the primitive New Orleans records now. Again, he just said that he had an appreciation for Gershwin, Porter, Kern, very sophisticated composers. These people are classified as white. When it comes to these black composers, African-Americans, they are primitive. We'll wait for the description for Soon Yi Preven and these other non-white children that they adopted from Vietnam. See if they are sophisticated 
or primitive. Then he comes right back again. Their idiom was primitive. How you get to be described as primitive twice in the same paragraph? Generally, an editor or someone will say, man, can we pick a different adjective? Like, do we have a thesaurus? Can we call them something else other than Neanderthal? Let's look up some of the synonyms for primitive. So in the same paragraph, their idiom was primitive, but within the parameters of New Orleans jazz, they had something truly magical inside them that oozed out of every note they blew. And even I thought that oozed, like I generally think of like slime and job of the hut, like ooze. I don't think of someone who is brilliant, talented, a genius, made a, a form of art that they still revere to this day. The airport in New Orleans is called Louis Armstrong Airport. Uh, just does that does not have the same sophistication and description to say that these primitive did I mention they were primitive and their talent just oozed out of them uh he continues uh and and this reminded me so much of the cheating scandal uh where the white people they made up all these credentials and uh, about how they went to college and that they were baseball players and athletes and all this. And it turns out it was all a big lie. When he says, I just don't have the ear, the tone, the rhythm, the feeling. And yet I play publicly in clubs and on concert stages and opera houses all over Europe and packed auditoriums in the U.S. I played in parades in New Orleans and bar- in New Orleans and bars there at the Jazz Heritage Festival and at Preservation Hall. And all because I can cash in on my movie career like in my opinion like wow this is someone who is told his movies are all about with this child rape that's what they're about that's the central theme that it keeps coming back to so if that's what your movie have promoted for decades Manhattan and all the rest of it if that's what we're getting consistently is that why people are coming like this is such a core aspect of white culture that Woody Allen can't play a note he's we got testimony self-evident I suck at this I'm not very good call him the people who helped him get better at the clarinet enablers I'm not very good but I've played at all of these venues you would think I'm a world-class musician nope I'm just a white man and a child rapist now, I mean, you don't want to talk about what it means to be white and all the different ways white welfare where they'll come and talk to you about meritocracy. Let's see. Uh, he says, so I'm about 15, a multiple wannabe failing in school. And yes, my hormones reach a critical mass. I began my love life, as one might call it, the theater of the observe. I highlighted that as well. I thought that was important, just like uh Mo in Dallas, uh, where I mean, you're telling on yourself, you're telling on yourself here, in my opinion, just looking at everything. I mean, how can you look at this and call it anything but child rape, absurd, criminal activity, sexual perversion of the highest order, absurd is putting it mildly and failing in school like, man, all this about meritocracy and you got to get your grades up and pull your pants up. Let's see. And Rita Hayworth, I just highlighted that because we did talk about the film Shawshank Redemption. I think they're at their like 20. It's just over 25 year anniversary or something. 27 years, maybe a little more. Uh, the great. Uh, oh, man, I forgot his name. Black uh, Black. He's one of my favorite. Morgan Freeman. How could I forget Morgan Freeman uh, and Andy Dufresne? 
uh, the great Shawshank Redemption, they have that scene where Morgan Freeman, they're in prison, they're watching the movie and they see Rita Hayworth. And he says, oh, I love to see her do that thing with her hair. White, that's white culture right there, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, he says... So I read some of it I liked. He's talking about how he messes up with a lot of these females because he's poorly uh, read, not because he's, you know, a sexual pervert, child rapist. I'm just poorly read. So he says, so I read some of it I liked, some of it I did not. I was an omnivore who couldn't get enough literature. Reading was always competing with sports, movies, jazz, card tricks, and just plain not reading because print looked so dense. Again, I'm an idiot. You know, I'm just a dumb guy. But then he, he does all this name dropping of all the people. Like if you go in Starbucks uh, or get like uh, Barnes and Noble, one of the bookstores borders and like look on the ceiling and see all of the renowned white authors of like the last 250 years. He's name dropped all of them right in here. William Faulkner and Emily uh, Dickinson and Kafka and T.S. Eliot. He's name dropped Harold Melville and Moby Dick. He's name dropped them all right there. Dostoevsky all of the main books that you you know would have had to read in uh, any English class really anywhere in the world for about the last as I said 200 years he just mentioned them but he doesn't read 1984 we read that in the book club uh, even when he gives the list of books that he has not read just the fact that you are aware of them and knows that these are important books that mean something in white culture is signifying a lot even if it's to try and come back and say oh I'm ignorant because I haven't read them which I suspect is probably a lot uh, let's see and on the other hand I'm one of the few guys in my peer group who read Joseph Goebbels novel yes Joseph Goebbels the gimpy little suppository who flacked for the Fuhrer tried his hand at a novel called Michael. Now I think that's interesting. I might even be interested to check that out. Dr. Welsing talked about Joseph Goebbels all the time and his propaganda machine and talking about how you can propagandize anything, even putting millions of people in an oven. Uh, Woody Allen uh, reading his enemy. Allegedly he identifies so-called Jew if that means anything. Uh, let's see. And then he does that again, talking about all the different uh, major films that he's not seen. And he's just an ignorant guy with glasses. Uh, let's see. Mm -mm -mm. He says he uses the metaphor. And even that, like a lot of his metaphors uh, are signifying important points of reference in white culture. He says, meanwhile, high school is droning on. I'm slowly realizing that one day in the not so distant future, I will have to make some life decisions. College where must go though or mother will put her eyes out in the manner of Oedipus now you have to, that means you have to have read uh, Oedipus Rex another you know keystone of white culture uh, Greco-Roman culture too and then like whoa this is talk about telling on yourself now this is the book that's a revered part of white culture where the son ends up in a sexual arrangement with his mother Right. And this is the references I'm talking about myself and why I have to do things in life. Mm hmm. Uh, let's see. This is another one. He says, you'll hate me, but I don't like pets. Uh, we read White Dog this time last year. This is again. He's he knows the importance of dogs in white culture. Uh, and then he comes right back. Uh, we had uh we talked about the bitter sweet science 
uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. He was with us, I think, April, springtime uh, of this year. And he talked about the importance of boxing and how so many white. The ho- he talked about the homoerotic environment of all these white males swarming around to watch a black guy box. Uh, and he says there were a few games and I won a few bucks from the suckers. But the women. Oh, and this is when he's cheating with diet. But the women I dreamed of swooned over. Artists, poets, cultivated babes who valued Rilke over Sugar Ray Robinson. His obsession, again, African-American jazz artists and athletes. Let's see. He's known for being at Knicks games. Uh, You know, lots of black guys on the Knicks over the years. Uh, We lived in Long Beach for a few seasons and now I come to the point I digressed for. In school, I was 10 years old and I wrote a composition in which I referenced Freud, all the sexual commentary there to the id and the libido, not knowing that I was talking, not knowing what I was talking about, but having some odd instinct for knowing how to parlay a jot of knowledge. In this case, just the words into a comic bit that works and makes the reader or audience think I know much more than I do. The teachers were greatly amused by what I wrote. They passed my writing around, whispering to each other and pointing at me. This odd flair has stayed with me my whole life, and knowing how to use references has grown into a useful tool. I think he's done that all throughout this book. All the references that I've just mentioned for whatever reason, uh, you know, to, to kind of present himself as an idiot. Uh, to kind of show off in a manner of not doing so, but I think we've got a lot of that. His use of words to confuse, to deceive, uh, to confound how you think about him or to manipulate how you're going to think. I think he's done tons. We've read a whole book of that through two weeks now. Again, all of these references to how his dad is a criminal and a thief, a hoodlum. I just. It would not be possible for a black person to write a book like this and just so casually just talking about the thieving criminal uh, behavior of their parents. And that would just be laughed off. Like, oh, wow, that's so crazy. Uh, let's see. He mentions the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, again, revered in white culture, but also H.P. Lovecraft right now. They just had like this week just had a story talking about the racism throughout. He does like horror books and a lot of them have been made into movies and what have you. But there's a lot of racism uh, within the H.P. Lovecraft uh, books. Uh, Like I said, they did doing reports on this right now. Uh, Let's see. Dog spelled backward is God. Dr. Welsing talked about that. I said Dr. Welsing would have a field day with this book. Um, and this lame white guy who fails at school, hoodlum parents, uh, raping children, accused of having a sexual arrangement with his non-white stepdaughter who is 35 years younger than he. And he has statues erected to him in places where he did absolutely nothing of constructive value. What does it mean to be white? Get that again. Uh, Let's see. He gets in the NYU for whatever reason. They accepted me despite my dreadful average. Like I said, this reminded me of the cheating scandal. You can just make he might have done that. He's oh, yeah, I'm a ball player and all this stuff. So get up, get in. Uh, Let's see. And then he gets in, probably shouldn't have been there. And he says, I get in and then I fail all my courses. They decided to throw me out. I asked for one last chance to save my mother from self-immolation. They said if I went to summer school and did well, they'd reconsider biting the bullet. I agreed. Now, 
how many people at a major state university you flunked out probably shouldn't have been there to begin with and you could just go talk to them hey man just give me one more chance just give me just give me one more okay okay we'll let you we'll try to <laughs> meritocracy again that's what they'll tell you uh, oh man the metaphors he says in the blackest times it's nice to feel you're not just lying dormant a passive slug being pelted by the irrational lunacy of the universe the world and people in it may have their boots on your throat stomping the very life out of you George Floyd but the blackest times again the association of blackness darkness with something vile evil consistent within the system of white supremacy uh, and anything else I think I'll stop there uh, any other commentary folks need to make sure they get in before we get to the second audio segment or folks good grand we will assume folks are good for now uh, we'll go ahead and push off to our second audio segment and then we'll get other emails in we'll have ample time for folks to share so if you have commentary that you did not relate share with us jot it down we'll have ample time once the second segment finishes this is Woody Allen suspected racist accused child rapist apropos of nothing context of white supremacy audio segment two the next step in my relentless drive to succeed comes when a guy in the neighborhood named Harvey Meltzer who lives in an apartment house nearby has heard about me the neighborhood wunderkind and comes over to talk to me about being my manager. My understanding of the business end of show business is slightly worse than my grasp of the Hodge conjecture. He says his uncle is a big wheel at William Morris in Hollywood, and he has the inside track on something called the Writer Development Program, a program NBC is forming to develop and train promising writers. Apparently some suit up there has read in the beginning was the word. Their well-meaning idea was to find potential writers for drama and more so for comedy to put them on a steady salary, 175 a week, and to have them write to apprentice on shows under veteran writers to blossom with NBC cashing in on the fruit. I am all for this, as my salary at Alba is meager in comparison and the radio shows I write for wax and wane with the host's popularity. 175 steady every week sounds good, plus getting placed on some big-time show. I forgot to mention one small fact. Herb Schreiner, my biggest credit, and his lovely wife had died in a car accident. Two nicer people you couldn't meet, and with so many more I could think of who would have instantly made the world a better place if they showed up somewhere DOA, these two lovely, undeserving people buy it. So I agree to let Harvey, who resembles a less robust Tommy Dorsey, except with a kaleidoscopic smorgasbord of facial tics, be my manager. And sure enough, he nails the NBC writer development deal. I reward him by signing the seven-year contract he presents me with. One of his many mistakes. A much too piggish agreement I never should have signed. First seven years was too long. He was taking advantage of my naivete. Not only that, instead of the usual 10% an agent gets, he says he's a manager, which is different, and so earns more. 30%, he says. Fine. Hey, look, I'm a teenager. What the hell do I know? Not only that, there's a thing called a sliding scale, 
which normally slides in the direction of lessening the agent's percentage the more the artist earns. The higher the salary the artist makes, the less the agent needs to clean up. In the deal I signed, the sliding scale slid in the wrong direction. So the more I earned, the higher Harvey's cut was. Over seven years, a lot happened and I was wised up, but I never tried to break the contract. I served the whole seven years honorably. Let me illustrate what a hayseed I was at that age. I had never seen anyone with a hairpiece in my life. One day, I met with a comic who wore one. He wanted to pay me a hundred bucks for a routine. As we spoke, I noticed a thin rim of cheesecloth bordering his hairline. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, thought it was growing, and felt he should be in the circus rather than doing stand-up. Now, about the writer development program. There were about eight of us, after much vetting of our audition material and personalities, deemed worthy of NBC's investment. For all their scrutiny, though, they did not choose wisely, and there came a time when they would realize only a feeble return on their money. Most of the group wound up in occupations that have no resemblance to what NBC had in mind. The creepiest of the group wound up writing warmth lines for Richard Nixon's speeches. Aside from him, they were all nice people, but for one reason or another didn't become dramatists or TV comedy writers. Heading the program, or shepherding the flock, as the press used to say, was Les Kolodny, an ex-William Morris agent who was amusing, but who had no lesson plan and didn't know where to begin to transmogrify this group of maladroit dreeners into professional comedy writers. I took the money and used the subsidy to learn how to write, to practice writing sketches and jokes, to self-teach by hard work. I was hired and left to flounder like the others, but riddled with ambition from years of maternal hectoring, was sensible enough to make use of the time and money. We might meet up at NBC, sit in a room while young comics would show up and show us their stuff, and we'd pick ones to write for, thus presumably developing writers and comedians. Mostly we saw stiffs, but a young Don Adams, a young Jonathan Winters, a young Kay Ballard came in. Of course, they needed little or no help from us. The real talent created their own acts and never used us. I wrote one single joke for Don Adams. Jonathan Winters needed nothing from anyone. He was simply a genius. At that time, I met Harlene, the girl I would soon marry. It was yet another social club. I was the MC at one of their functions. I did jokes out of Mike Merrick's loose-leaf book of routines, and I had decided to delight the audience by playing my soprano saxophone for their delectation. Years later, a music critic would describe my playing at a concert as excruciating. New Orleans addict that I was, I chose Jada and at the Docktown Strutters Ball. Someone told me about a senior at James Madison High School who played piano. Somehow, a meeting was set up. She was pretty, she was bright, she came from a good family who had a lovely house and a boat, and she played classical music, took acting lessons, in short, she was much too good for me and would prove to be so after we married. We practiced our two tunes together and started dating. I must say, for college-age kids, I took her to very romantic, sophisticated places. Off-Broadway shows, Birdland to see Miles Davis and John Coltrane, candlelight restaurants in Manhattan. I held my own as a charmer and lover with the exception of when her family took me out for a day on their boat. 
I was being a good sport and wanted to appear impressive, but once out to sea, just when I was chug-a-lugging a beer and intoning a chorus of heave-ho, blow the man down, <clears throat> I turned chartreuse and dropped to the deck, groaning and begging to be euthanized. As I lay there, describing a Mobius loop, my seasickness soon to go into the Guinness Book of World Records, I vowed never to step on a boat again and didn't until over a decade later. I was trying to impress, or should I say not seem like a nincompoop. I am a nincompoop and often go to great lengths to disguise it. And so I went out on a sailboat at the urging of the very beautiful Janet Margolin while we were filming Take the Money and Run. The results were the same. After boasting of my exploits at sea and calling the crew me hardies, I was soon lying on the deck ready to trade Janet for a composine. As we were only in San Francisco Bay, a short distance from the shore, my pleading for a helicopter to airlift me to a hospital went unheeded. Sailing back and staggering from the vessel, pale and shaken, I made some lame excuse blaming my unraveling on a recent Middle Ear infection picked up in the Sudan where I was teaching the Nuba to perform Flugel Street and who's on first. Harleen and I each lived with our parents, and I called for her every night. We did everything a dating couple does. And by the way, by then I had a car. I had purchased a 1951 Plymouth convertible for 600 bucks. I had entertained great fantasies about how a car would change my life. It would liberate me. I could drive over the bridge to Manhattan any time I chose, spin out to Long Beach to visit nostalgic old haunts, go to Connecticut on a spring morning to commune with nature— I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I hated nature. And more than nature, I hated being a car owner. Like all mechanical objects, we were instantly arch enemies. I'm not a gadget lover. I own no watches, carry no umbrellas, own no cameras or tape recorders. And to this day, I need my wife to adjust the TV set. I own no computers, never have gone near a word processor, have never changed a fuse, emailed anyone, or washed a dish. I'm one of those adult seniors who needs to have all the buttons on the TV rendered unusable by having them taped over so I can only operate the on-off and volume buttons. At 16, I treated myself to a new typewriter, an Olympia Portable. I've typed everything I've ever written on it. My scripts, plays, stories, casuals. That's what those funny pieces in The New Yorker are called. To this day, I can't change the ribbon. My wife does it for me. But for years when I was single, I had an acquaintance who I invited over for dinner any time my ribbon needed changing. After dinner, I'd casually bring up the subject of typewriters and how exciting they are and suggest how much fun it might be to change the ribbon on mine. We'd retire to the study and I'd put on some music. I remember his favorite for changing was the Kachaturian saber dance. The intensity of the piece excited him as I'd slip him a fresh ribbon and say, let's see if you still have your old touch. Taking the challenge, he changed my ribbon in a mad fury, finishing with a flourish and a grand bow while I feigned amazement at his manual dexterity. After that, he was all perspiration and heavy breathing, but at least I could go on pounding out my sublime monkey shines till the letters on the page would once again grow faint and I'd have to have him back for meatloaf. Where was I? Oh, yes. <clears throat> so a car in my hands was like giving an ICBM to a three-year-old. 
I drove too fast. I swerved and cornered where there was no corner. I couldn't back park. I spun out of control. I had no patience in traffic and wanted to exit the Plymouth and leave it forever in the midst of a jammed street. I drove around endlessly, unable to find parking spaces, and then couldn't squirm in. I bashed in many a headlight and taillight of parked vehicles trying to fit between them and then pulled out and sped off in panic, leaving the scene of the crime. I got lost continually. I had no sense of direction. Once driving on the Sunrise Highway, Harleen said her parents were away and we could go to her house and use the bedroom. Inflamed by the idea, I made a quick U-turn and knocked over a telephone pole. I got flat tires on the West Side Highway at 3 a.m., only the kindness of strangers bailed me out. If the total stranger who was nice enough to stop in the black night and instruct me in how to change a tire hadn't been so patient and had been, say, the Zodiac killer, I wouldn't be here. Yes, it was as all girls' mothers feared a hotel room on wheels. But every time I began smooching, a flashlight appeared at the window and some cop moved me on. Many drivers screamed at me, and when I accidentally hit another car broadside on Atlantic Avenue, a raging monster who was bodyguard and driver for a mob boss charged to my window as I suddenly had visions of myself as the subject of a candlelight vigil. Quickly, I rolled the window up and got his hand caught in it. Erupting like Vesuvius, he bent it back like it was a sardine can. Had not a crowd intervened, I would have ended up in 37 separate mason jars. And yet I did drive because everyone I knew seemed to be able to manage a car and why shouldn't I? But I never could and gave up on it shortly after. I tried driving once or twice years later with the same results and finally packed it in for life. The moment I sold the Plymouth was like having a tumor removed. So Harleen and I did everything and we looked up one day and decided we would marry. We were kids. There was nothing else to do. We had seen all the movies and shows at the museums, played miniature golf, sat over cappuccino at Orsini's, and spent a day at Fire Island. What was left? So we got engaged. Between my steady salary with the NBC Writer Development Program and the money I was making selling special material to nightclub comics, I could afford to be a married man. Special material is a branch of comedy writing that goes unsung, and the public doesn't get to really appreciate there are millions of comedians around, or certainly there were when I started. They play nightclubs or, or on TV or at private functions, and they all need material, jokes, bits, routines, something to say. Most of them were not very good, as evidenced by the fact that they needed other people to put words in their mouth, funny words. If left on their own, they couldn't coax a chuckle from a manic fat man on laughing gas. Naturally, truly gifted ones like Mike Nichols and Elaine May or Mort Saul or Jonathan Winters needed no one. They didn't have to buy jokes. They created material themselves because they were indeed funny. The icons of an earlier era like Bob Hope and Jack Benny had also created their own strong comic personas. And by the time they were superstars, they could hire writers to feed the character they had themselves earlier established. So I, like assorted colleagues who kept their stoves warm by the servicing of various mediocre wannabes and depositing the worm of funny into their anxious open beaks, wrote special material. I was forever sitting at some nightclub hearing the sad whining of an uninspired tumbler who couldn't figure out why he was stalled at the bottom rung. I need an attitude. 
I don't have an attitude. Alan King's got an attitude. I have to get an attitude. What he needed, no writer could give him. All we could do was sell comedians some jokes or a routine which they would memorize and perform with varying degrees of skill. But nothing ever stuck. The audience never went home with anything. No human being, certainly no funny human. Just an extrovert who bought some one-liners, is out there getting laughs and applause, and then wondering why he's not making it. What I need are truisms, one poor soul said to me, coining a luberlineologism as he medicated his chemical imbalance. The audience identifies with truisms. I presumed he meant insights where the jokes resonated with the house and recognizable experiences. Still, the field of special material provided many of us upcoming writers with our daily tuck, although it could get hairy. It sometimes went like this. Comic and writer meet. Comic needs new routine. Writer throws out ideas. Comic likes one. Comic gives down payment to writer. Writer writes comedy bit. Comic tries it. Bit doesn't work. Comic blames writer's writing. Writer blames comic's delivery. Much anger. Comic loses deposit. Winds up with nothing. Out a few hundred bucks. Invective ensues. And threats of a lawsuit or two broken legs, depending on the comic's capacity for remorse. It was at this time that I got the news from NBC that they were flying their developing writers to Los Angeles because one of the big shows, the Colgate Comedy Hour, was failing, and maybe we could help save it and in the process learn something. I had never been away from home, never had any interruption with my relationship with Harleen, and most of all, had never flown. In those days, the planes had propellers and couldn't make the trip nonstop. And worst of all, traveled through the sky. On the other hand, going to the city I knew only from listening to Bob Hope monologues seemed exciting. Hollywood and Vine, Mulholland Drive, the La Brea Tar Pits, all of us who loved Hope on radio or later TV knew of these places only from his jokes, just as radio had taken us every Sunday night to the home of Jack Benny in Beverly Hills. I might even get to meet Hope or Benny. Excited, I assumed Mom would sew name tags on my clothes, and off I'd go. But as the day of departure drew close, I began feeling a little panicky. And at the airport, when I saw the other writers purchase flight insurance at a vending machine, you inserted your coins, and out came a policy, so if your plane crashed, a designated beneficiary would collect. I grew pale. My fear was not so much dying in a crash, but crashing in the wilderness of some mountain, lost for weeks, no food, and the other writers elect to eat me as I was the youngest and hence most tender. As luck would have it, we didn't crash. I made it to L.A. without winding up anybody's main course, and the policy buyers lost all their quarters. After pausing at the airport for an English muffin and a fresh cup of smog, I got into a waiting limo and was soon checking into a hotel on Hollywood Boulevard. A horror, worse than an aviation disaster, was the news that I would be sharing a room with a man named Milt Rosen, an older, portly comedy writer who'd been out there struggling to save the Colgate Comedy Hour with a half dozen other veteran scribes. Not only would I be sharing a bathroom, oh God, could this be happening to me, but the bed was a double bed. Stricken, I staggered around thinking I'll pay for my own room. But could I? Or should I feign a family crisis and go back to New York? But I'm a comedy writer with a real opportunity. I'm in Hollywood. This is where it all happens. 
the movies, the homes with swimming pools, Bogart and Bacall, Gone with the Wind, only blocks away. Bob Hope lives here, Sunset Boulevard. This is where you strove to make it. I stayed. I shared a bathroom and a bed. Bruno Bettelheim writes about how in the concentration camps, one accommodated quickly to hideous conditions, which without the threat of torture or death would have required long years of analysis with dubious results. <clears throat> of course, he wasn't thinking of sharing a bed with Milt Rosen. As it turned out, Milt was a nice man and a smart man and a funny man, and I liked him. And 50 years later, having not heard a word from him in all that time, I found out he was ailing and in need, and I sent some dough, and he was surprised I remembered him. Still, I found it pretty disgusting to bunk with a chubby stranger who had XY chromosomes. We had a few days off to get settled before my assignment, and as I walked around Hollywood, loving the palm trees and the sunsets, I was warmed by the knowledge I was being given a chance to be a part of history I'd grown up mesmerized by. I drank the local orange juice, ate the sweet rolls, Danish we call them, and one day marched into a room with a couple of writers and got introduced to the head writer who had been brought into town to turn the moribund hijinks around and hopefully get some mileage out of us. His name was Danny Simon, and I knew of him from his credits as a TV writer. He and his brother Doc had been a sensational comedy writing team that all of us in the business knew of by their great reputation. We'd seen their shows, for example, The Red Button Show, and they were deservedly hot stuff. The brothers had just broken up the team as Doc Simon, whose given name was Neil, wanted to begin a career as a playwright. Danny surveyed us schlumps and asked to see examples of material we'd written. We handed over pages of stuff which he said he'd take home and read and discuss with us. I was the youngest one there by far, and he was polite but slightly skeptical when he accepted my binder of material. I went home, not discouraged or encouraged, but hoped I could factor in and contribute. There were other veteran writers out there working. I, I say veteran, there were more veteran than me, already established, but not old guys. Norman Lear and his partner Ed Simmons were a team. So a Coleman Jacoby and Arnie Rosen. Ira Wallach was out there trying to help out. And there was an assortment of comics trying to bolster the show from a newly emerging Jonathan Winters to an old vaudevillian, Joe Frisco. I dined alone and went to sleep, keeping one eye open all night, lest Milt Rosen roll over onto my side of the bed. I was prepared to let out a piercing shriek. The next day, when Danny Simon called me into his office, my life changed forever. He proceeded to tell me how terrific my jokes were and said... If I never learned to write sketches or plays or anything else, my jokes were so good I could make a great living with them alone. Needless to say, this was encouraging. He wanted to work with me, and since the departure of his younger brother, he was constantly searching for a working partner, and maybe I was it. We began to collaborate on writing comedy sketches. Let me give you the picture. Danny was a very compulsive, demanding guy who fought with every partner he worked with after Doc. Writers on Danny's level had no patience with his scrupulous demands, his constant rewriting, working all day on a single page to get every straight line and punchline perfect without stopping the narrative flow. Then he'd reread the page, destroy it, pop yet another Milltown, the fashionable tranquilizer of the day, and begin again. Collaborators rebelled. 
and he was merciless with them. And how many could follow in the footsteps of a comedy writer like Neil Simon? I, on the other hand, was a soft-spoken kid who knew nothing, idolized Danny and Doc Simon, could never imagine disagreeing with Danny because what the hell did I know? And so he found himself an ideal collaborator. He loved my jokes and thought me personally very funny. I suppose he enjoyed being so looked up to. And he taught me some key things. For example, great straight lines make great punchlines. Never have the character say something that wasn't perfectly natural just to get to a great punchline I had waiting. He taught me to throw out even my finest jokes if they in any way halted or slowed the narrative. To always begin at the beginning and go right to the end of the sketch. Never to write a scene out of sequence. Never to write when you're not feeling well because the material will reflect the lack of energy and health. Never to be competitive. Always root for the success of your contemporaries as there's room for everybody. And most important, he taught me to trust my own judgment. No matter who tried to tell me what's funny or what isn't or what I should be doing, I was to go with my own judgment. Unless, of course, the person was him, because he fancied himself the gifted teacher on a subject that many tried to explain and analyze, from Freud to Henri Bergson to Max Eastman, and have come up empty. And he was a great teacher. He imbued in me a confident quality when it came to comedy, and this firm point of view has helped me enormously. At Summer Theater, which I'll come to, my first week, I wrote a sketch to go before a live audience on the Saturday night show. After a few days' rehearsal, there was a run-through, and all the contributors naturally came to the run-through to see their material mounted and tweak it. I didn't bother to come. So confident was I. When a girl asked me, where were you? I said, I didn't need to go. I wanted my sketch to play as it was, and it didn't need tweaking. And she said, oh, of all the pieces in the review at the run-through, yours died. And I said calmly, not trying to be aloof, but undoubtedly oozing unearned hubris, I'm not worried. When the show went on and some numbers faltered and failed, mine played to big laughs. I had held my ground, as Danny had taught me, and my sketch was one of the hits of the show. So I was learning how to be a writer, and that meant being at the typewriter at nine and hard, even agonizing work and reworking until six. Other great comedy writers I later wrote with did not work that way, but it was my foundation, and I'm glad I went to a rough school. I made friends with some of the older writers, and they liked me, because while I had some talent, I showed great respect, which I felt, and none of them were ever competitive, only helpful and encouraging. While out there, I was taken with the romance of Hollywood. By now, we had been moved to the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel into a charming suite with a kitchen and bedroom where I lived alone. The hotel had a courtyard with a swimming pool that all the writers and comics hung out around, and there were the sunsets and the balmy nights, not to mention per diems. I wanted to share it with Harleen, so I suggested she fly out and marry me. She had just graduated high school and was 17. I was 20. She talked it over with her parents, who said she could if she wanted to. Her parents were lovely people, a gigantic cut above my parents, who by comparison lived ten decibels higher. The Rosens lived well. They were not always arguing. They were cultivated, traveled, had a fine home. Next to them, my parents were cave dwellers who raised me as a Cro-Magnon. And Harleen's parents never should have let their daughter marry me. True, 
I was showing promise in my field, but I was not showing much as a person. I was still stupid. It's like driving. You never lose that. Uncivilized, neurotic, totally unprepared for marriage, an emotional mess who was coasting ever since 16 on what Noel Coward called a talent to amuse. That will wrap us for this week. Context of white supremacy, Woody Allen's apropos of nothing. Uh, let's see. I'll get in our email and then we'll get to our callers. Uh, final comments for the week. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, please don't wait till the last minute if you have commentary to share. Uh, so one of our investors writes in, uh, not planning to get the text. I wonder why. <laughs> uh, so my commentary will be based on the archived broadcast. I've seen quite a few Woody Allen movies. Last week's text in which Allen says he is not an intellectual seems exceedingly deceptive if one uses most of his movies as evidence he apparently maintains complete artistic control over them most are heavily dialogue laden with little overt action moreover obscure references to philosophers avant-garde artists and music is a quintessential part of a Woody Allen movie I remember not being familiar with a lot of his references thus often not getting the joke. <clears throat> Moreover, nothing about Woody Allen suggests athleticism to me. Everyone ditching on his athletic skills. Most guys I know who were athletes played on their high school team and usually have a team picture or some mention of it in a yearbook. Mm. Poor Woody Allen, no one is buying that you were an athlete of any stature at any point in your life. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, we have a little less than 30 minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, Moen Dallas, victim in New Jersey. Any other folks, if you think you have a comment to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, Moen Dallas, yes, sir. Um, uh, I'll I'll just give one for now. Um, I, I noticed uh, his seasickness um, the second time around. Uh, ten years later, I think, or five. Years, I don't remember how his. Uh, anyway, his second bout with seasickness. He uh, blamed the sickness on him teaching Africans from Sudan something. Um, I don't know what it was exactly, but. The niggas got him sick. Um, I thought that was very interesting um, uh, with how he explained the lie he did so fluidly as he was actually reciting the lie. You know, um, I can imagine that it came out as fluid then um, um, that it does, you know, that that up the other lies he told on the boat, how he was a frequent sailor, how he was calling the, the ship crew Hardy, maybe I don't know what he called him. He's some some sort of nautical term, um, and I think that since he is well read, um, he, he he uses that to his advantage uh, by um, 
tricking people into believing he's experienced in things he is not, like uh, baseball or something else. Um, yeah, but um, uh, the, the the manner in which the, the fluidity in which his lies flow, um, um, it's interesting and I thought noteworthy. I mean, my line. Thank you. Interesting and noteworthy, the manner in which the lies flow. Mm, what a critique. Mo in Dallas. Uh, he said nautical terms. I am at Alakai Beach once again. I think that's three weeks in a row for the book club. I've been at Alakai Beach. I told you this would be my this would have been my everyday post up for about the last two years for the book club because I was even closer where I lived before. And this isn't even the cool beach. But I would have been all about nautical terms and shiver me timbers, land lovers, all of that. If I had been if I were classified as white or there were no system of white supremacy, we would end the program and I would be out on the water right now for the sunset we can dream other folks with comments they need to share I'll check again give out a few of my comments as well I thought that was really important as well Uh, I think Moen Dallas was saying he didn't know that Woody Allen had changed his name like many individuals who say that they are a Jew or Jewish or and or other individuals who may now be classified as white where their status may have been in question at some point where they do this name changing uh, to make sure that they are accepted without doubt on him saying Woody said wow he basically named himself after an erection I put in Woody and erection on the search I got over 55 million hits so that is for sure well ingrained in the culture Woody being a reference to an erection let's see so he says he's talking about this oh, oh, oh let me make sure I'm back up a little bit alright so he's talking about the writers group that he was invited to be a part of and he says that none of these folks really panned out meritocracy again probably they weren't qualified just like him he says the creepiest of the group, and I just thought that, like, who is any creepier than Woody Allen, but whatever. The creepiest of the group wound up writing warmth lines for Richard Nixon's speeches. I don't even know what a warmth line is. And then that with Richard Nixon, like, yikes. Uh, in the same paragraph, he says, uh, he's talking about these no-count white writers. Uh, he doesn't identify them as such, but I mean, wow, if we're talking any time in like the 1960s or so, this is a total group of white writers, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, he says, but uh, the agent who was amusing, but who had no plan, who had no lesson plan and didn't know where to begin to transmogrify. Now, this is from someone who's not well read. That term stood out to me just because I've looked it up before when I was reading about the city that we've mentioned so many times today, New Orleans, and how it was transmogrified by Hurricane Katrina. That's where I read it. I was like, what? What is that word? I gotta it. And I had to go look that up. But yeah, transmogrify. Uh, let's see. Next, he says... I had, I had decided to delight the audience by playing my soprano saxophone for their de, uh, de, delectation. Years later, a music critic would describe my playing at a concert as excruciating meritocracy. 
then he talks about he says uh, he and his white female they went to see off Broadway shows they went to Birdland to see Miles Davis and John Coltrane this uh, consumption of black musicians and product necrophilia uh, if you will even when they're dead long history of that in fact the term they use for this sometimes is slumming sometimes that can be sexual intercourse with a black person and or just going to consume and hang out with the culture uh, so he says on the boat, he says, I was chug-a-lugging a beer and intoning a chorus of heave ho, blow the man down. Like Mo and Dallas talked about that. Uh, sobriety would be best. Incidentally, talking about nautical safety here in the Puget Sound area, the water is so cold. They recommend if you're going to go out and drink, be very careful. You fall in the water, your life will to uh, hypothermia will set in quicker. If you have alcohol in your system, the water here is very cold. Water safety. Uh, let's see. He describes himself. Oh, and even that whole scene, him getting seasickness. I just thought you're supposed to be an athlete. Not that athletes can't get seasick, but yeah, that's another scene that seems to conflict greatly with you being an athlete of any sort at any time. Next, he says, uh, I am a nincompoop and often go to great lengths to disguise it. The disguise I agree with. I don't think it's a nincompoop. I just think he's a suspected race soldier and child rapist and that's what he goes to great lengths to disguise let's see not even really if you look at his movies anyway uh, sailing back and staggering from the vessel pale and shaken I made some lame excuse blaming my unraveling I'm fading out just because that's repeatedly this was last week too where whiteness is connected with sickness and a lack of vitality that is uncommon in white literature. Generally, whiteness is uh, unblemished, perfection, godliness, spiritual, something good, not the blackness of depression and the black market and the like. Next, he says... Mm. Uh, and let's see, I could drive over to the Manhattan, I could drive over the bridge to Manhattan anytime I chose, spin out to Long Beach to visit nostalgic old haunts, go to Connecticut on a spring morning to commune with nature. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I hated nature. I said, what does it mean to be white? All the climate change that they're talking about and destruction of the planet. Specifically, that reminded me like exactly Urugu. Dr. Remember I Need, the very first book we read in the book club, Total Disconnection to the Planet, to Nature Against Nature, White Genetic Annihilation and having some sort of problem with the creator and the planet and nature and all of that, that sense of being unstable and unbalanced. It's Woody Allen, neurotic and unstable about things and I hate nature. I don't want to go out and sit and be calm and think and just look at the water. Try not to be a nincompoop and a schlemiel, as he says. No, 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 I don't want to do that. Then I'm just paying it. I think Mo and Dallas or some other folks said, man, I would not read this type of book at all. If we weren't doing it in the book club, I wouldn't want to read this at all. Me either. But whew, I'm studying, I'm highlighting it. I'm not really reading this for entertainment purposes. What does it mean to be white? What is white culture? Now, he says he talks all this. He hates a car. He sounds like, I guess what they call it, the the new, uh, the young folks. They don't do all that driving, do the uh, ride share and everything, get an Uber and a Lyft. And I don't want to own a car. He says, uh, I'm not a gadget lover. I own no watches, carry no umbrellas, own no cameras or tape recorders. And to this day, I need my wife to adjust the TV set. Soon ye, I presume. 
I own no computer, never have gone near word processor, never changed a fuse, emailed anyone, or washed a dish. Like, whoa, you've never washed a dish the soon you do all your dishwashing? I'm one of those addled seniors who needs to have all the buttons on the TV rendered unusable by having them taped over so I can only operate the on-off volume buttons. Now, again, to me, some of this sounds like someone who is not very athletic, like seems like you don't have very good hand-eye coordinate. You can't even drive a car. I'm not saying everybody who's not into driving is not athletic, but I'm just saying, like, if your hand-eye coordination is that bad, what kind of athlete could you be? Just saying. You do need some hand-eye coordination in the baseball, right? He did say baseball. Next, he says, uh, at 16, I treated myself to a typewriter, new typewriter. I've typed everything I've ever written on it, my scripts, my plays, stories, casuals. That's what those funny pieces in the New Yorker are called. To this day, I can't change the ribbon. My wife does that for me. You mean Soon Yi? Uh. Now again, now what type of athlete are you? You can't even change a typewriter ribbon? I'm not saying you have to have the most dexterous fingers, but I mean, man, what? <laughs> Poor Soon Yi, you got to do everything for this. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, let's see. He says, I'd never heard this term before. After that, he was all perspiration and heavy breathing, but at least, oh, this is when he's talking about having to share a room. Uh, so he says, but at least I could go on pounding out my sublime monkey shines. Now, I'd never heard that term before, monkey shines. I said, hmm, what does that mean? Monkey shines. So I'll give it to you. Monkey shines, informal, mischievous behavior. That reminds me, I think Mo and Dallas and I both had highlighted when he described his love life as the theater of the absurd. He describes his writing as his monkey shines. That's all I can take. Like, you're not going to hide. I think he's being very accurate and trying to be coy about it. But I mean, misbehavior is putting it mildly. Monkey shines is putting it mildly. Even some might say Welsing moment and white people consistently referring to themselves as monkeys and monkeys, uncle, planet of the apes, all that. Uh, Let's see. Next. And his inability to drive. I bashed in many a headlight and taillight of parked vehicles trying to fit between them and then pulled out and sped off in panic, leaving the scene of the crime. This guy's just a total criminal. I mean, I don't find anything about that funny. I'm sure all the people whose cars he banged up, maybe some non-white people who, you know, that now they got to go out with all these expenses and you get a busted tail like like, ooh, that could be excuse to get pulled over by an enforcement officer and all kinds of things. I'm sure they don't find that funny. This guy's a total criminal in every aspect. Uh, he said uh, he gets a flat or gets three flat tires at 3 a.m. He said only the kindness of strangers bailed me out at those total strangers uh, who was nice enough to stop in the black night again. Mm. Then uh, he wouldn't be here if he had been the Zodiac killer. And I thought it was important because he goes from Zodiac killer. The very next sentence is, yes, it was as all girls mothers feared a hotel room on wheels talking about his car but every time I began smooching a flashlight appeared at the window and some cop moved me on I just thought that was so significant because Zodiac killer who was going and killing some people in vehicles as they were doing that doing their makeup thing or whatever and then he goes right to him being in a car and moms fearing their daughter ending up with someone 
like him, as they should. Mia Farrow, I'm sure, would say that. I just thought that was interesting because they're close space, so close in space to the writing. Uh, let's see. Next. Anything else? Jonathan Winters. He mentions this list of different uh, writers, white writers. Jonathan Winters. Uh, he was in the Smurfs, the original one that came out, and all that. He was also uh, on a television program for Shirley Temple. Uh, I think it's like nighttime stories with Shirley Temple. I think people know the long history of racism, white supremacy. And and again, this is what is white culture. You can look at some of the films. In fact, uh, the folks that he mentioned, Elaine May and some of these other folks, they uh, participated in some of the longstanding, really popular television programs from the past 70 years or so. Um, All of these. What is white culture? Shirley Temple all the way through and through. What is white culture? It's dominating non-white people get that clear uh let's see oh and then we got another one with the whiteness so he says uh but as the day of the departure drew close i began feeling a little panicky at the airport when i saw the other writers purchase flight insurance at a vending machine you inserted your coins and out came a policy so if your plane crashed a designated beneficiary would collect i grew pale my fear was not so much dying in a crash, but crashing in the wilderness of some mountain lost for weeks, no food, and the other writers elect to eat me as I was the youngest and hence the most tender. Cannibalism? Again, what? Even that, like, what are all these cannibal references to him describing other people as food that he wants to eat and delectable and all that? And then this, uh, my, my neurosis is that we're going to crash and they're going to eat me? Woody Allen, Woody, white culture. Then he says uh, he's talking about being in Hollywood, but I'm a comedy writer in the real opportunity. I'm in Hollywood. This is where it all happens. The movies, the homes with swimming pools, Bogart and Bacall gone with the wind. Talk about deception, a whole deception about racism. White supremacy was only blocks away. Bob Hope lives here. Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Bruno Betlime writes about how in the concentration camps one accommodated quickly to hideous conditions which without the threat of torture or death would have required long years of analysis with dubious results of course he wasn't thinking of sharing a bed with Milt Rosen now that this is supposed to be a so-called Jew you're comparing you having to share a bed in Hollywood with one other person to a Jewish concentration camp like disgusting on so many levels and again the white people as the victim I guess this is supposed to be funny the exaggeration but I don't find it funny at all Uh, I think just that plays into the self-deprecation and oh woe is me CCC that type of a thing get out of here Woody Uh, let's see I did think it was significant because he he talks about all of this help he's in this writer but he gets so much help in his early career when he's been nothing but a no count a flunk out in school he's not doing I mean this guy's a total louse in every way according to his own testimony but he gets so much help from other white people uh, to help him with his career let's help you get this job let's refine your talents and even the step by steps this is what to do and never be competitive always root for the success of your contemporaries as there's room for everybody some of this I think is really important in how white careers get nourished developed 
And then this is not available for black people. I would say even almost on the doorstep of 2022. Uh, let's see. Oh, when I said, Ooh, now he said in the previous uh, paragraph or previous audio segment, he talked about black jazz musicians having talent oozing out of their pores. And I said, man, I, I think that's a really poor word choice and just kind of shows a contempt uh, for black musical genius, black people in general. He used the word oozing again. So this time around, it's I wanted my sketch to play as it was and it didn't need tweaking. And she said of, of all the pieces in the review at the run through yours died. And I said calmly, not trying to be aloof, but undoubtedly oozing unearned hubris I thought it was more fitting here because this is not really a compliment he's saying this is unearned hubris I have no right to be confident I'm unaccomplished I flunked out of school college and high school like there's no reason for me to have this so it should be this is not someone who's a musical genius who's accomplished anything yeah it it is kind of like some offensive uh, oozing of grossness like what in the world what grounds do you have to be so arrogant uh, about what you produced excellent use of the term here the one before racism white supremacy and primitive uh, let's see uh, anything else yeah I can leave it there any other comments folks have they want to make sure they get in Oh, I misspoke. Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. New Orleans mentioned a lot this week. Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. I want to jump in and say really quick, um, when I heard you talk about New Orleans and transmogrify, um, when I went to uh, the New Orleans uh, Creative, the, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts for Creative Writing, they had us watch The Mighty Aphrodite by Woody Allen, and I was shocked about that because I had heard from my mom so many times that he was a, a, a predator, a, a you know, sexual abuser. And I just want to say um, what, a, what a turn. I don't know how far you are into the book, but I'm looking forward to, um, to listening to what he thinks about himself. And, um, like, even when I used to listen to um, most deaths first, solo album he was mentioned in Mr. Nigger, you know what I'm saying, the comparison between him and O.J., um, O.J. still being harassed and Woody Allen um, not being harassed for being a sexual predator, but he's definitely um, lying, like you said, or someone said about not being educated, because when you watch The Mighty Aphrodite, it changes from uh, like vignettes of a Greek chorus and they go, you know, they have dialogue and they have a chorus that says something and then it switches back to like modern time vignettes and everything. And I don't know, maybe he could have stole it from somebody and you still have to have a certain amount of intelligence to be, you know, cunning or whatever. But this is an interesting pitch, whoever recommended it. So that's all I really want to say. Thank you. Much obliged, Irene. Now, just in line with what we read this week, the storyline for Mighty Aphrodite reads, uh, so there are two parents who have an adopted Lenny. So Lenny is played by 
uh, Woody Allen in this. Lenny and Amanda have an adopted son, Max, who turns out to be brilliant. Lenny becomes obsessed, that word again, with finding Max's real parents because he believes that they, too, must be brilliant. When he finds that Linda Ash is Max's real mother, Lenny is disappointed. Linda is a prostitute and porn star. On top of that, she is quite possibly the dumbest person Lenny has ever met. Now, again, he's putting all the sexual perversion off onto the female who's younger than Lenny himself uh, in this. Uh, Interwoven is a Greek chorus linking the story with the story of Oedipus. Now, we just I just mentioned that in the first portion of the text. He wrote uh, the reference calling his mom, saying she didn't want his mom to have the same fate as in the book Oedipus Rex. Uh, where she's going to dig her eyes out. And I said, man, why do we have to have these references to a story that's about a child having sex with his mother? And then you do a movie where it comes up again. And why? And this is a canon of white culture, Western civilization for like centuries, going back to Greco-Roman. Hold it. They just said that right there. Greek chorus line. Uh, why is that? So, what is white culture? Why is that so important? And why all this sexual perversion, children having sex with their parents and adults raping children and all the rest? Why is that so important? Why is that something that we want to celebrate for centuries? We'll ponder on that as we uh, continue. We got everybody. Everybody satisfied. Obsessed. How many times the word obsessed and neurosis used? Urugu, Dr. Marimba Ani. We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, if folks have a moment, you can invest. Hit the wish list at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. I need a replacement battery for my laptop. That would be super helpful as well as that external sound card. Super easy. Help make sure we have all the equipment to keep broadcasting. Much obliged for the folks who have invested, kept us rolling for 12 plus years. Uh, that said, we'll be here tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Whew. Sobriety would be best. We heard Woody Allen get on the boat, start drinking, and and, and end up being seasick. Uh, sobriety would be best for many reasons. We're in a system of white supremacy, and we're in a system with many, many predators. Need your brain computer to keep you safe. That said, if you're going to go out and about, be very alert about your surroundings. You do not want to put yourself in a dangerous situation. Lots of armed folks out and about. Uh, if you see someone being hostile, this is not the time to verbally confront someone. Exit. You don't know if this person is armed. You don't know if this person has an entire armed entourage. If you did not leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die. Exit. Take things very seriously as we wrap up the summer of 2021. 2021. Yes, yeah, said it right the first time. Uh, all of that said, if you're in a vehicle, if you're driving, you're buckled and you are not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention and we're trying to minimize contact with enforcement officers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person 
It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.